Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what you can do to solve them. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. I suspect that today's guest, uh, Lewis Bollard, might be the single best person in the world uh, to interview if you want to get an overview of uh, all of the methods uh, that might be effective for putting an end to factory farming uh, and and what broader lessons we can learn uh, from the experiences of people uh, working to end cruelty in animal agriculture. That's why I interviewed him back in 2017 for episode number eight, uh, and it's why I've come back for an updated uh, second dose four years later. That conversation became a touchstone resource for anyone wanting to to understand why people might focus their altruism on farmed animal welfare, uh, what those people are up to, uh, and why. And I hope that this uh, this second episode can perform the the, the same purpose uh, for the for the next four years. But I'm uh, I'm happy to add that uh, that this episode certainly isn't only for vegetarians uh, or people whose primary focus uh, is animal welfare. Uh, the farmed animal welfare movement has just had a lot of big wins over the last five years, uh, and many of the lessons that that animal activists and and plant based meat entrepreneurs uh, have learned are of much broader interest. So with that in mind, uh, Kieran has done some editing to make sure that, that the parts of uh, this interview that are of interest to the largest number of people uh, come first. Uh, some of those topics include, uh, will plant-based meat or clean meat displace conventional meat? And if so, when? Uh, and maybe how quickly can, uh, can plant-based meat reach price parity uh, with animal meat? Do big and, uh, and famous documentaries or, or perhaps lectures on moral philosophy uh, successfully convince people to become vegetarian or vegan? Um, and if they do, uh, how long does that effect last? What's up with surveys that suggest that uh, many Americans would be open to criminalizing factory farming? Um, and also, uh, why has Costco almost eliminated caged eggs from its, uh, from its supply chain uh, years before it actually had to? While we, uh, while we tackle all of those questions uh, and, and a whole bunch of others, uh, one thing that we don't rehash here is the, uh, is the nature of the problem and why Lewis is choosing to work on it. So I'll just uh, quickly recap that now. Um, you can skip ahead about three or four minutes uh, if you've heard one of our animal focus episodes before and, and don't want to hear this introduction again. So in brief, about 25 billion land animals uh, are being raised in factory farms around the world uh, at any given moment, uh, including around 2.4 billion uh, in the United States. At any point in time, there are around 300 million uh, egg-laying hens in the US, uh, and roughly 72% of them uh, are forced to live in battery cages, uh, which prevent them from moving and, and prohibit really uh, almost any, any natural behaviors that, that hens have. While that 72% figure is, is pretty shocking, it's, it's down from 99% uh, just a decade or two ago. Similarly, uh, there, are, there are 72 million pigs being raised for food in the US at any, at any given point in time. Um, and, if, and if you've ever uh, spent time with pigs, uh, you know that they're really intelligent uh, and, and social, uh, social animals. Uh, but but as, as with the hens, uh, the sows are confined uh, for months uh, in crates that prevent them from even so much as, as turning around, which in my mind is just uh, really, a really an awful thing to do. And more broadly, in, in these farms and slaughterhouses, just hideous acts of cruelty uh, that would immediately get someone sent to prison if they did it to a pet dog. Uh, things like cutting off body parts without anesthetic are completely legal and simply standard operating procedure for 99.9% of farmed animals uh, in the US. Now, while some European countries have meaningful animal cruelty laws uh, in, in agriculture, um, the situation that prevails in the US is really uh, more typical of the world as a whole. So if animals deserve any moral consideration, uh, there's almost certainly a vast amount of suffering being inflicted on animals in, in agriculture. And while we don't know how to weigh the moral importance of, of non-human animals relative to humans, um, the amount of suffering among farmed animals in the US might plausibly uh, be not so different than the amount of suffering experienced by all of the people in the United States. On top of all that, uh, until recently, uh, the issue has just been extremely neglected 
uh, with, with only a tiny number of people uh, spending their careers trying to end what is, uh, in my view, a really appalling state of affairs, uh, and those people having almost no money uh, to actually work with. That suggested uh, to Lewis and others uh, that there might be a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, should a larger number of people set their mind to uh, ending factory farming uh, and if they were properly resourced to, to have a go at it. And indeed, uh, fortunately, as you'll hear in this conversation, uh, the issue has indeed proven to be uh, very practical to make uh, big inroads in. So uh, with that uh, short introduction there out of the way, uh, here is my second conversation with Lewis Ballard. Today, I'm speaking once again with Lewis Ballard. Since 2015, Lewis has led Open Philanthropy's program on farm animal welfare. And OpenPhil is a large foundation that is aiming to have the greatest possible positive impact on the world with its giving. And flatteringly, given that it has that goal, it is one of 80,000 hours biggest donors. Since Lewis joined, uh, OpenPhil has dispersed about $130 million in grants to nonprofits as part of its farm animal welfare program. Prior to joining Open Philanthropy, he worked as a policy advisor and international liaison to the CEO at the Humane Society of the US. And prior to that, he was a litigation fellow at HSUS, a law student, and an associate consultant at Bain & Company. He has a BA from Harvard University in Social Studies and a JD from Yale Law School. So thanks for coming back on the podcast, Lewis. Great. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be back. So uh, I plan to talk about uh, how to make plant-based meat much cheaper than it is today uh, and what you've learned since we last spoke in 2017. But first off, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important to do? Sure. So we are working on expanding the global movement on farm animal welfare, both improving the conditions of animals in factory farms and reducing the demand for animals to be in factory farms in the first place. And I think this is particularly important work given the scale uh, of the problem. We've got over 100 billion vertebrate farmed animals alive at any point in time. Uh, just one example is over 7 billion uh, layer hens in, in cages at any time. Uh, but I think it's also particularly important because there's been a lot of tractable opportunities uh, to, to make change in this area. And I'm excited to talk with you uh, about some of them today. All right. Well, uh, with something as horrible and uh, ubiquitous as factory farming, and I guess animal agriculture <laughs> really large, I found that it's kind of easy to get down about how things are going and how terrible the situation is. And uh, frankly, to be honest, uh, living in lockdown here in London and uh, not re- really leaving the house, I'm trying to make an active effort every day to focus on the positive in order to stay motivated and uh, keep my mental health good. So although I've got a lot of questions today, I'm keen to stand out with a list of what wins there have been in the animal space over the last four years since our interview in 2017. So yeah, is it possible to summarize what's, what's gone right for fun? animals. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've had a lot of really exciting progress over the last few years. So three areas that that stand out. The first would be on plant-based meat. I think we've seen a huge amount of progress in this space. In the last few years, the world's largest meat companies like Tyson, JBS, Hormel, uh, CB Foods have all gotten involved in the space. The largest food companies like Nestle and Unilever have been making major plays. It was only two years ago that Burger King launched the Impossible Whopper in the US. And since then, they've rolled out plant-based burgers almost globally. A second area we've seen a lot of progress, I think, is on corporate farm animal welfare reforms. Groups have secured over 1,200 new policies since we last spoke, especially eliminating battery cages. And uh, then the third area I would call out is, I think, on European farm animal welfare reforms, both making progress on broiler chickens, but also seeing the European Union committing to issuing new farm animal welfare directives in the years ahead. All right. So let's maybe go through those one by one. The um, plant-based meat space, I guess, I guess that kind of breaks down into plant-based meat. And then I guess there's like cellular agriculture or uh, clean meat. 
Has that gone above expectations? Do we have a sense of how much is being sold relative to the market as a whole? Maybe expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely has gone above expectations. So just take the US market uh, as one example. When we last spoke, plant-based meat had been increasing by about 1% to 2% in retail for the few years leading up to 2017. Since then, it's been increasing by around 16 to 18% per year in terms of sales, driven heavily by the introduction of new products like Beyond and Impossible. And then we've also seen a huge rollout at, uh, in fast food. And then similarly on the fast food side, we're seeing a globalization of this. So we're seeing new Impossible burgers being rolled out in Asia. We're seeing in China, the leading state planning commission welcoming investment in, in plant-based meat in the country. So I think we're really seeing a huge level of global interest in, in the space. Yeah. So what's likely to be to be next for that? Do you think that we're going to be seeing, you know, significantly uh, eating into actual purchases of meat products at the, at the supermarket anytime soon? I hope so. I think it's it's still early days. So it's, it's definitely worth bearing in mind that we're still less than 1% by volume of total meat purchases in, in the US and in, in most markets are, are plant-based. But I do think if you look at the trajectory of something like plant-based dairy, which is now about 15% of US dairy sales, I think there's huge scope for that to increase. And I think also when you look at this uh, taking on a major role in food service and fast food chains, I think there's a huge scope for plant-based meat to take over more of the, the market share there. Yeah, what's the market share in, uh, in fast food at the moment? Yes, yeah, so we don't have good data on that, unfortunately. I think our, our best, so, so the best data we have is on retail in the US market, which is it, it's just crossed about a billion dollars in, in sales this year. And the best estimates on fast food is that it's about a billion dollars more in sales on the US fast food side. Yeah. Do we have kind of reviews that people are giving on these things? And are people just trying it out as a novelty and then sticking with it? Uh, do, do we have qualitative impressions? Yeah, so we have, I mean, we have some positive reports, for instance, from Burger, from Burger King, which uh, rolled out the Impossible Burger first of the major chains and, and has reported strong, strong sales. I think we're also uh, yeah, seeing some really positive qualitative reports of, of people saying the products are substantially better than older variants of, of plant-based meat. So I think a lot of promising signs there, and perhaps the most promising sign is that we are seeing fast food chains doubling down on their bets on plant-based meat. So we're seeing Impossible launching additional products, uh, Duncan, which which did this, also launching additional products using plant-based meat, which I think is a really, really promising sign. What's motivating the, the fast food companies? Uh, they think maybe this is going to be a big market in the future and they, they want to get in before it's too late to set it up properly? Yeah, so I think there are probably multiple motivations. Uh, one initial motivation, I think, is, is what's called the kind of veto vote, where if there's one member of a family or a group going to dine out who's vegetarian or, or vegan or even just looking to reduce their meat intake, it's really important to have something good to offer that person so you don't lose the, the rest of the group. I think the second thing driving this is a general trend we're seeing of people trying to reduce their meat consumption. And so, you know, flexitarians or reducitarians, people who are trying to eat less, if it's an easy option, that might make it more appealing to go to that fast food chain than to go to a competitor that doesn't have a similar offering. Yeah, I guess it seemed to me like McDonald's over the last 20 years has done quite a big turnaround from being, well, a fast food place that's you know happy to lean into its reputation for not being super healthy to a place that's trying to offer lots of healthy options as well. I guess just because that was a larger fraction of the market now was people who wanted healthy food. And maybe this is part of a similar thing where they're, they're trying to appeal to just like a large fraction of, of people, uh, or at least like a significant, <laughs> sufficient fraction of, of the market is interested in like a healthy options or, or non-mean options that they feel like they, they have to, uh, yeah, have something to, to, to bring those people in. 
Yeah, I think that could, could well be part of it. it. It's interesting, actually, that McDonald's has been a little bit behind on this oh, trend. Really? So we, we've seen uh, Burger King now has a, a plant-based burger in all of its major locations, recently launched in Brazil and Mexico and the Philippines globally. McDonald's has plant-based burgers in a lot of European markets and has had them for a very long time in India, but doesn't have them in key other markets, including the US. And they did recently announce planning to roll out the McPlant uh, sometime in the coming year. But it is kind of interesting to see that they actually have been a little bit of a laggard on, on this one. Do you think the Burger King is thinking, oh, no, maybe we can like gain market share, we can get people to come to us because of this veto issue, people won't be able to go to McDonald's and they'll say, oh, no, do you know Burger King has plant-based meat and people might be interested in the novelty and that will like get them in in the first place? I think that's probably been a major driver. Yeah, I do think there's been a real benefit to, to companies like Burger King being the, the leader on these things. And um, it's it's cool to see that kind of competition. I mean, I think we're really seeing a dynamic of, of companies trying to catch up with one another. We've seen this too on the, uh, on the meat company side, the food company side. We're increasingly seeing CEOs during investor calls being asked, what are you doing on plant-based meat? You know, why are you behind Tyson? Why are you behind uh, Nestle or Unilever on this? And so I think seeing a lot of really positive pressure for companies needing to have a play in this area. Yeah. And this is the most important thing, but is it just me or is it kind of strange that half of the sales is in fast food or is in restaurants when I assume that like in most of food sales is not in restaurants, it's, it's at supermarkets. Like it seems like people, they seem to be more likely maybe to try these plant-based meats in restaurants rather than at the supermarket. You know, actually in, in the US, about uh, half of, of meat is consumed um, by, by value, I should say, not by volume, but by value. About about half is is consumed at at restaurants, so that's that's not atypical. I think there is actually there is though too a, a definitely a dynamic uh, and, and impossible. This has very much been their strategy was to start in restaurants, which I think both reduced the barrier in terms of of the novelty. So it's it's you know it's sort of hard to seek out in a supermarket where there are many items. Easier to see if something is featured on the menu. It's a common preparation you're used to seeing in the Whopper. But the other thing is that it ensures that products are produced the right way, that they're, they're, um, they're, they're cooked properly. I think, you know, from with a lot of products is that it matters a lot how you cook them. And so if they're sold through retail and people first try them doing a poor job of them, that's not going to be as compelling as, as you know, Impossible in particular started at high-end restaurants with top chefs preparing their products. And I think that's a really kind of clever way to show the product in the best presentation possible. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then maybe, I guess, people try it out there, they like it, and then they might be interested in buying it at the supermarket. That's right. Um, well, I thought that I ate out quite a lot, that I was, I was spending quite a lot of money at restaurants, but evidently I'm behind the ball game on this one, 50%. So it's <laughs> impressive. Okay, so I think that the second one you mentioned was that corporate campaigns were, were going pretty well. Yeah, like what, what fraction of all uh, farmed animals are potentially being affected by these corporate campaigns? Yeah, so our, our estimate um, is that uh, campaigns just over the last few years uh, will affect at least 170 million animals once once impacted. And, and as you, I should say, it's 170 million animals alive at any point in time. And so that's going forward as, as well. There have really been two sorts of, of campaign wins. So the first is on the cage-free side. We've seen there over a thousand new policies over the last few years, both seeing policies in key geographies. So for instance, in Brazil, three largest retailers have now all committed to going cage-free. In Europe, the largest retailers in all of the largest European countries are now committed to going cage-free. And we're increasingly seeing global cage-free commitments. So for instance, from Burger King pledging to go cage-free in all of its markets. And then the other main type of corporate campaign we're seeing is on 
broiler chickens, these are the chickens raised for their meat, and improving their genetics, giving them more space, improving their conditions. And on this score, we've seen a lot of pledges in Europe, and particularly exciting to see all of the largest retailers in France have made commitments to improve the welfare of their broiler chickens in the coming years. You said a thousand policies? I'm just guessing, given the sheer number, that many of them must be doing this kind of off of their own bat, or because I don't imagine that the nonprofits have enough people to be running like a thousand pressure campaigns on a thousand different companies to get them to change their policies. Is it just kind of snowballing because people see the writing on the wall? You know, it's actually mainly advocacy groups working oh, right. working wow. with people, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a testament to the global scale of these campaigns now, and so you know, a lot of those commitments are country-specific commitments. So, for instance, through the Open Wing Alliance, you have over 70 groups working across over 50 different countries, and they are routinely securing new commitments in different countries. So, you know, in in Mexico, we're seeing constant new commitments in Brazil, in Thailand, in France, in Germany. So a lot of that is, is the scale you're seeing is working through different food sectors in all the biggest, biggest countries in the world, basically. Right. Okay. Yeah. So last we spoke, we're saying these campaigns, they kind of go to one company, they say, we're just going to keep hassling you and like damaging your reputation until you do (laughs) make make a commitment like this. And they had a reputation at the time of never having given up. So the companies eventually fall because they're just like, well, we probably will end up doing this anyway. And like, we're better to do it right away than suffer a whole lot of brand damage than get get ground down into doing it anyway. Do these organizations still have a reputation for just never having lost and given up and walked away? Or have they had to, to abandon some fights perhaps? You know, I, I, I actually don't know in terms of uh, individual campaigns. I think there have been so many more campaigns at this point that it's it's hard to keep track across all, all countries or all geographies. But I think that that logic you outlined remains the same, that groups do seek to make it very clear battery cages are going to be obsolete. They're, they're on the way out. And the only question is whether you pledge to eliminate them now or you wait until some of your competitors have already pledged and until you've had a campaign alerting your consumers to your slowness on this issue. And, and then you'll make the pledge. And by the way, you'll still have only the same amount of time to, to, to get rid of those cages as your competitor that, that did this more proactively. Okay, so there's this other factors. One thing is this commercial incentives of not having people tarnish your reputation. Have the costs shifted at all or the technology shifted or even the attitudes of people in these companies to make them perhaps more willing to make this change? Because it's just, it's happening faster than I would have expected because you'd think they'd be so reluctant because it would increase their costs and that's just a key issue for them. Yeah, and that remains the major barrier for sure. And to be clear, you know, there's, there's still a huge amount of work needing to be done on this, particularly in, in new markets. So for instance, in East Asia, we've seen the first pledges, but it is much harder to get those initial pledges than it is to get the remaining pledges in Europe. So yeah, I think you are seeing a, a couple of factors that have helped a lot in increasing that number have been the momentum built, particularly the momentum built in Europe both on seeing that all of their competitors have now made these pledges, but also seeing on the implementation side that in a lot of countries, the egg sector is now moving heavily cage-free. And so it becomes a lot easier to fulfill these pledges. So in Europe, for instance, the majority of hens for the first time last year were now cage-free rather than in cages. And as that trend changes, there is a positive, uh, this kind of a positive cycle where the more hens that are cage-free, the easier it becomes for companies to make these pledges, to implement these pledges, to go cage-free. It becomes easier because their competitors are doing it so they won't be at a disadvantage or it becomes easier because like, people are so familiar with this farming technique that it's more straightforward? 
Yeah, both. So so certainly the fact that their competitors are doing it and they're not worried about getting undercut, but also just having widespread availability. So one concern that companies will often have is if you're the first company in a new market to go cage-free, then you need to go and find cage-free eggs near all of your stores. You know, if you have retail stores all across the country, you might be relying on 20 different egg producers. You need to work with all of them to transition. It's a lot easier if your egg producers are already transitioning. They're already supplying your competitors with cage-free eggs and you don't need to start that conversation. You don't need to work on the transition. You can just start buying the same thing they're supplying your competitors. That makes sense. Okay, so yeah, when it's half of all hands, then it's, of course it's just they're, they're spread out over everywhere and there's going to be going to be high availability. That's right. All right, let's move on to the third positive area, which I guess was a policy change. Can you flash out a little bit more on what policy changes there have been in the US and UK and EU that have that have been good? Yeah, absolutely. I think there have been a lot of exciting policy changes in the last year. So the most significant is the European Commission, after years of inaction on farm animal welfare, committed last year to revisiting its key directives, which is are effectively legislation on farm animal welfare and specifically on chickens and laying hens and, and broiler chickens. We've also seen a number of national commitments. So for instance, both France and Germany have committed to end castration without pain relief for piglets and have committed to end the killing of day-old male chicks by the egg industry, replacing that with uh, technologies that can sex the embryos and and avoid the need to, to hatch them in the first place. And we're seeing a number of initiatives in other countries, for instance, in the UK, uh, the potential for farrowing crates to be banned, the live export trade recently announced that that would be banned, and seeing the potential to ban cages there too. Yeah, and, uh, and in the US? Yeah, so in the US, it's, it's been slower on legislation for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, Have there been any impediments over the last few years? <laughs> any political challenges that I haven't I haven't been following? Sorry, go on. <laughs> it's been slower. I'm sure. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure you've uh, you've been following uh, as, as, as as closely as as we all have been. It comes the, up uh, occasionally on the news. <laughs> yeah. So the the uh, in the US, there is a, a core challenge structurally that you have factory farming states overrepresented in the Senate uh, and heavily overrepresented on the agriculture committees in both the House and Senate, where any legislation would need to start at the federal level. We've seen a little more progress at the state level. In particular, in California, there was Proposition 12 in 2018, which was the most ambitious ballot measure yet on farm animal welfare, and and that passed with over 60% of the vote. And that will result in not just a complete ban on cages and crates in California, but also a ban starting at the beginning of next year on the sale of caged eggs in California. Okay. All right, let's turn back to the to the UK and EU. What has allowed these policies to get through now where, where they weren't able to, to previously? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think there have been a, a number of factors that have been helpful, but one that I would cite is I do think that the advocacy groups have built up some really positive momentum on this issue. So we've seen groups like Compassion in World Farming in the UK and and Europe and Eurogroup for Animals have been working with policymakers on the need for new legislation and the specifics of new legislation. I think funnily enough that Brexit may have actually helped on both ends, (laughs) both because uh, in, in England, one thing the Conservative Party made a big deal of was that Brexit would allow them to raise farm and welfare standards in ways that they hadn't been able to, for instance, by banning the live export trade. On the other side, in Europe, it seems like it's reduced a lot of the legislative logjam. And there's a lot more desire on the European Commission and European Parliament's part 
to be seen to be legislating proactively again. And they're, they're much less sort of taken up with the issues of Brexit than they were a few years ago. They're now looking to proactively do, do new things. So, and then I think the other thing that's been feeding into this a lot is the corporate progress we're seeing. So it becomes a lot easier for legislators to imagine, for instance, banning cages when the industry is already moving in that direction itself. So when retailers have already committed, when the egg industry is already starting to be majority cage-free, uh, enshrining that in law becomes a lot easier than it before we had those pledges. Yeah. Yeah, to what extent do you think the progress is driven by, I guess, specific advocacy campaigns and nonprofits and the work of individuals versus maybe some kind of background moral change that's going on where people are becoming more humane and, and more concerned about animals just in general, perhaps as they become wealthier or more educated? Yeah, so I think it's always hard to separate those out. But I, I do think the advocacy piece is, is critical to it. And, and one piece of evidence for that would be that we've seen reform comes in spades. So we, we sort of saw this first in the 1990s, European Union putting in place a whole bunch of reforms. And then we saw advocacy for various reasons focused elsewhere. We saw various obstacles and we didn't see that legislation, even though Europe was still you know, getting richer, potentially getting more humane during that period of time. We didn't see legislative moves again until, until very recently. Similarly, you can look at counterexamples where you have similar factors, but you don't necessarily have that advocacy, that organised advocacy you have in place in the European Union, and you aren't seeing the same degree of, of legislative progress. All right, pushing on, you've got this amazing roughly monthly newsletter that OpenPhil puts out on farm animal welfare uh, research. We'll stick up a link to it. I'll figure out actually what people can Google so they could they could find it quickly. Despite being like so interesting every month, it hardly gets promoted. And lots of people I know don't know about it. What's going on with that? Why, why not make a blog out of it and push it a little bit more? Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. You know, it started as something very informal that I was just sharing with a small group of people who were, who were interested. And I'm happy to see that it, is, it has grown over time. We have become marginally more public. You can now find the archive of all those newsletters on the Open Flash Free website. But I think that's a great idea to be more, more public with it. Yeah, you should, you should make a Substack, Lewis, and I can make all of that cash money, get the subscriptions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if I fully understand uh, Substack, but uh, that, that it sounds cool. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. All right, so that just wasn't an idle question because I have been reading back over these and there's three of them that I, that I had some questions about. The first one was about, yeah, the price competitiveness of meat and meat alternatives. So you're writing in one of these newsletters that an important issue may prove to be whether alternative proteins can reach price competitiveness with meat. Can you just lay out for the audience kind of what are their relative prices now? Yeah, sure. So I can tell you the uh, most recent price data I have, which is from about a year ago. In the US market, the retail average of plant-based meat being sold in the meat aisle fresh plant-based meat was around $10 a pound. And for frozen plant-based meat, it was around $7 a pound. That compares to, for beef, about $5 a pound and chicken, about $2.30 a pound. So we are still two to four X the price of, of the relevant meat comparisons. Yeah. And why are plant alternatives more expensive? I mean, generally, meat is among the more expensive things that people buy. So if you kind of eat lentils instead, it's usually cheaper. So, uh, you, might, you might have naively thought that uh, these, these plant-based alternatives would, be, would cost less. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things going on. So one is that plant-based meat products are a lot more complicated than lentils. So you're using uh, plant protein isolates or concentrates, which is substantially more expensive than the underlying plants. You're sometimes using plants that are more expensive. So crops like peas or chickpeas are more expensive than, than soy or, or wheat. 
And then the next thing is you have this need to process, to distribute, and it's still relatively small scale. So factory farming has had a 70-year head start in building out a crazy scale um, and just constantly reducing costs by, you know, reducing every last little bit of, of the of, of the cost process. And as a result, it is crazy cheap. So, you know, I think one thing people lose sight of is, is like chicken is, is insanely cheap. And, and so it's a really hard target for a new product, for a product that still is relatively small scale, that still has a number of complicated steps to make. But I do think we're seeing we're seeing progress on 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 that. I think you wrote that chicken is actually cheaper than peanuts, by the way, which is just bananas. Like, how is that possible? Uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's like part of why it's so barbaric is they've just cut like every margin at like, yeah, they've made no concessions to animal well-being or really anything other than making it cheap. That's right. I mean, it's, it's really insane. If you look at the price structure for producing chicken, 70% of the wholesale cost of chicken is just the cost of feed. And chickens eat the cheapest feed. <laughs> they eat, you know, corn, soy, wheat, and they convert it very efficiently. <laughs> so feed isn't even that big a cost. And yet that's 70% of the cost. They've gotten things like labor down to the most tiny cost. And that's basically they've, they've created this process where there is almost no labor involved. There are almost no people involved in the system. There is almost nothing involved in the system other than very large sheds in which the birds are continually fed until they're they're fat enough to go to slaughter. Yeah, I guess from what I've seen elsewhere, it's also the case that most of the people in the poultry industry also don't get paid very much and in fact have a pretty terrible time. They've managed to kind of squeeze every cent out of those folks as well. I mostly don't talk about that because I'm not super sympathetic to people who are involved in this industry that I regard as barbaric. But uh, yeah, it's not as if the people involved in the industry are benefiting either. That's right. Yeah, I think for, for uh, chicken producers, it's a pretty hard and tough life. I mean, they, they make very little money. They need to take on huge amounts of debt. Uh, they're on the hook for their facilities. And then, yeah, they face constant pressure from the big chicken producers who are constantly sending them less money and expecting them to do more and more. Yeah. Do we have much evidence on how much lower prices would actually raise demand? I was thinking as I was writing these questions, couldn't we do an experiment where it's like we subsidize Beyond Burgers in some city for a little while <laughs> or in at least like one supermarket and see how much that drives up demand if we can make them price competitive? Yeah, so we don't have great evidence. I think it would be really interesting to see experiments like that. I can tell you that in general, meat is pretty price inelastic to demand. However, when we see changes between the relative price of beef and chicken, that seems to make quite a bit of difference how people switch within meat. And so one question will be, do people view plant-based meat as a direct substitute for chicken, as a direct substitute for beef? How much, you know, how, how relevant is that? Another, I think, interesting data point is on plant-based dairy, which is about 15% of US retail sales now, and it's still more expensive than cow-based dairy. So they've managed to get to a substantial market share without hitting price parity yet. But there is, there is some really exciting developments on this front. I mean, I think one is seeing Beyond and Impossible are reducing prices substantially. And so it'll be really interesting to see how much of a difference that makes in, in their total sales in the years to come. Yeah, so intuitively, 
Yeah, you're saying that the demand for meat in general is price inelastic. So if all meat becomes more expensive, people still feel like they want to eat a particular amount of meat as a fraction of their diet. They're, they kind of insist on that. And so they'll tend to just pay the extra price. But then they're much more willing to switch between the kind of meat that they eat in as much as the, the relative prices change, which, which kind of makes intuitive sense. I guess that would suggest to me that you could see a big impact if these substitute meats, alternative meats were around the same price, then a whole bunch of people would just maybe become kind of more indifferent. Or, or it suggests from another point of view, you could say, there's a lot of people who want to buy meat. They're uh, choosing between the meats based on price. And then if you could get it to be the same, then suddenly this huge impediment for them, this huge deterrence factor has gone away. Yet, yeah, how quickly are the prices converging? You said that the alternative proteins have, have gotten cheaper. How, how quickly is that happening? Yeah, so we're particularly seeing this with the more expensive products with Beyond and Impossible, but we've seen that the cheaper brands traditionally like Boca and Morningstar are seeing sort of steady but slow declines in price. Beyond is really interesting in that because they're now a public company, we can look at their SEC filings and not only see what they're doing in terms of pricing, but also see their underlying production cost declines. So, you know, make sure that the price declines are not just coming from them, like needing to slash prices. To, to And um, the really encouraging thing on that is between 2019 and 2020, the SEC filing suggests that Beyond's cost of goods sold fell from about $4.50 a pound to $3.50 a pound. So there was a you know, $1 pound drop just over the course of a year. Impossible, we don't have that kind of production cost inside, but their costs of the ultimate end product have fallen by about a third over the last year and a half. Whoa, that's great. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I spent a decent amount of money on these. So that's <laughs> not only good news morally, but also financially for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, can we get much money out of governments or something to fund this research? Like, what do you think might be possible to do in order to drive the price down faster than that, that won't happen otherwise? Yeah, I think government funding would be huge. I think if we see that although we have a lot more going on in this, in this space, the scale of research and development we still need is the kind of scale that governments are best at providing. And there have been some promising signs on this front. So one is in Canada over the last years, they've committed to spending over $160 million on plant protein optimization. Singapore and Israel, I mentioned, have have both been spending over $10 million a year on supporting plant-based protein startups and doing research and development space. And then the European Union has done, by our count, over $50 million in the last few years on alternative protein-focused projects, mainly through this Horizon 2020 initiative that funds environmental initiatives. We've seen smaller grants recently from the US government through the National Science Foundation, from governments in Brazil, Spain, India, Japan, and even China. So we're starting to see that, but huge amount of additional scope. And just to give you a sense of what that could be, in, in the US, the annual just US ag research budget is about $3.7 billion dollars. So if you just to take a, a relatively small fraction of that budget, we could see a huge amount uh, more funding coming into the space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess you're saying, I mean, China's interested in this from a food security point of view. Uh, that, that kind of brings in, you know, national security budgets and other very big concerns that potentially could uh, a relatively small amount of money for national security would be <laughs> a, a 10x or 100x of the money going into this kind of research. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I certainly um, don't know what's going on with the Chinese national security budget. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. I, I think you're right that as, as governments view this as not just something that is motivated by animal welfare or even just the environment. I think that's really helping with funding, but also is motivated by food security, by creating jobs, by creating new sources of, of food and economic development. Uh, I'm really hoping that we will see a lot more government funding in this space. Yeah, nice. 
So the prices are going down, but at some point, presumably they'll level out because we'll run out of ways to make it a whole bunch cheaper. I guess it's kind of speculation at this point, at what point they would level off and whether they will actually be able to get down to the same price as, as me. Uh, but do we have any indication on that? I don't think we have a great indication. I think yeah. that is the huge challenge for, for companies. And I think that particularly the biggest challenge is competing with chicken. So there are already products on the market that are as cheap as ground beef. There are no products on the market that are as cheap as commodity chicken. And so I think that the real challenge for companies is, is yeah, how close can you get to that? What are the steps required on that? And, and that's a place where I think, too, we need to see both this, this government funding, but we'd also love to see more startups doing work like Rebellious Foods, which is a startup that is, is focused on bringing down the price of chicken through process engineering improvements. Yeah, I eat a bunch of the of the chicken substitutes. So I guess the good news is that they are a bit more expensive, I suppose. But yeah, in terms of taste and texture, they're very similar. I guess it's a it's a relatively more simple meat, perhaps to to mimic. Yeah, I think that's right. At least for the uh, processed products, so for the patties and, and nuggets, which at least in the U.S. market, that's about half the market is for the processed chicken, uh, and so that sort of makes sense as a, as a place to start. There's then another set of challenges on on texture for the other half of the market which is primarily whole cuts. So, you know, breast meat or wings or, or thighs, all of that, of course, is, is going to need its own work on improving texture to, to compete with that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the answer may well be no, but do you have any thoughts on kind of career opportunities that listeners might be able to take if they're interested in uh, you know, pursuing careers that would make these alternative proteins cheaper? Yeah, so, so certainly if, if you have the ability to do science, uh, if you have the ability, I think then working most obviously at a startup, but also working in academic labs. And both, we're seeing a number of universities working on this now. I think it's huge potential for people to bring in additional government funding by becoming an academic researcher, applying for scientific grant funding, et cetera, applying for funding from the universities. So that would be one, one route. I think another route is, is going the business side and whether that is working at a startup, whether it's going to work someone like the Good Food Institute and working on, yeah, what are these economic barriers and how can you take out those barriers? Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, another newsletter that you wrote last year was about documentaries about animal agriculture and animal well-being. Um, so it seemed, I guess you'd, you'd cataloged in your team and cataloged that there'd been a growing number of uh, big budget documentaries that looked at looked at these issues. And some of them recently seemed to be reaching pretty big audiences uh, and had a fairly big budget, uh, like The Game Changers or, uh, or Forks Over Knives. Do you think they're having much social impact, maybe by creating activists or changing people's, people's diets? And, and if they are, is there, is, there, is there any way to know? Yeah, so it's, it's hard to know. Um, we have a few pieces of, of partial data. So one piece is there have been a number of surveys over the years of current vegetarians and vegans asking, why did you go vegetarian or vegan? And for about 10 to 40% of people cite a documentary as, as a key factor. So that's, that's one piece of evidence. Another piece would be looking at Google Trends data. So for instance, Game Changers, we saw a significant uptick in searches for plant-based diets around the time that that, that movie came out. And then there have been a few movies like Blackfish on, on SeaWorld that have had a very clear targeted impact. You know, Blackfish, I think, basically contributing to the demise of SeaWorld and, and to its ending, its, its orca program. But it's hard. It's hard to assess. And I think this is a real challenge with this kind of social persuasion work is working out, yeah, whether you're having an impact at all and what the right, what the right benchmarks for that are. Yeah. What kind of advice for uh, prospective documentary makers did the research turn up? So I think one thing which is is not totally within the control of prospective documentary makers is that established documentary makers have 
a lot more success, not just in terms of, of making a good movie, but the, the, it seems like the key bottleneck right now is getting onto the platforms. So, you know, very few people, very few documentaries make it out to movie theaters, even if they were open with, with, with COVID. <laughs> uh, really, where all the action is now is, is getting on Netflix and then to a lesser degree, getting on Amazon Prime, getting on the other platforms. And it's very hard to get onto those platforms. So one thing was that IMDB tracks about 4,000 documentaries coming out a year. Only a few hundred of those make it onto Netflix, a few hundred more make it onto Amazon. And one thing that was was hugely helpful was having first an established director. You're much more likely to get on Netflix if if they already have something of yours on there. A second thing was that there is a lot of value to having established production companies involved and established distribution companies. So again, this probably has more to do with just the connections and the reputation um, they bring. But it, it does seem like there is an unfortunately an aspect of it is a lot easier for more established players to produce hits in this in this industry. Reminds me of that I was uh, the the quip about how do you found a a great research university? The answer is uh, start it five hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Got a bit of a thing. It's like how to yeah how do you produce a successful documentary? It's a already be a successful documentary maker. <laughs> um, <laughs> something that surprised me uh, was that it did seem like there was such a strong correlation between the size of the budget and how many viewers or how successful the, the movie was. There was some correlation, but you came down on thinking people should just try making lots of cheap documentaries and some of them will, will take off and, and maybe you shouldn't focus on making it such a big budget necessarily rather than just increase the number. Yeah, and I think that's mainly to do with the variation in potential budget size. <laughs> so you have a lot of documentaries that cost $100,000 or less, and then you have a lot of documentary that cost several million. And the documentaries that cost several million on average do better than the documentaries that cost $100,000. But on average, they don't do, you know, 20 to 40x better, which is what, what you would need to think to, to justify that, that cost difference. So that's the key piece. And obviously, that doesn't take into account as much the time of people going into this. So, you know, if a documentary only costs $100,000, it's probably partly because the documentary filmmakers are not valuing their time very highly. So that, that's another, you know, another, another factor to, to consider. Yeah, I suppose, well, yeah, so it could be that this result might shift if you thought about kind of the opportunity cost of the staff right. and maybe just like the money isn't isn't the, the main input in those cases. But I suppose it might also just suggest that there's kind of a spark that you get with some documentaries or just like the topic really works somehow and it's a bit hard to buy that with more money. And so you just kind of want to throw a lot of stuff at the wall and then figure out what, what thing is compelling. And it's better to do that 10 times on a low budget than once on a big budget. Yeah, so, so definitely one finding from this is that it's a hits-based business. Uh, it's it's very much the case that every year there are over 15 new documentaries on, on factory farming, and you don't hear about the vast majority of them. And although there are some things you can predict ahead of time on whether something is going to succeed or not, there are definitely plenty of really good documentaries out there that no one ever sees. And because a number of these factors are hard to predict, that's where I think it's really valuable to have more plays rather than to just kind of put all, all your focus on having that one critical play. Yeah, a, a listener wrote in uh, when I said I was going to be interviewing you and said they'd, they'd read this uh, piece on, on documentaries and were curious whether it had any implications for the potential of maybe social media and, you know, Instagram influences or, or advertising to promote the, the same ideas. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think there's been some really exciting work on social media by 
a lot of advocates and, and groups, so groups like Mercy for Animals and the Humane League have had really active social media presences. And definitely things like viral videos, I think, have have done a huge amount to publicize the plight of animals on, on, on factory farms. So, yeah, definitely excited to see more focus on that. I think one thing is it's even better, in my mind at least, if, if some of the, that work can be targeted at institutional change. So, for instance, you, know, you see relatively a lot of, of just content on social media just about factory farming, just about veganism. I think that's very valuable. But I think even more so when it can be in support of a corporate campaign or a legislative change or something else where we can bring about a more tangible direct change. Yeah, no, that that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, yeah, the third newsletter that I was interested to talk about was about political opportunities. So the Biden administration has just uh, taken office. Does that create many opportunities for, for any change in policy in the United States? Or is it maybe a little bit disappointing? <laughs> Yeah, so it's hard to hard to say. I think in general, factory farming has definitely been an ignored political issue, especially in, in, in the US. And when, so we're not going to see major new legislation anytime soon. We're not going to see huge new rule changes. The signs so far from the Biden administration have been mixed. So I think they put together a good transition team for the Department of Agriculture, had some real reformers on it, and they have already withdrawn a Trump administration rule to speed up poultry slaughter lines, which would have been bad for animal welfare, amongst other things. On the flip side, they appointed Tom Vilsack, the former USDA secretary, as a new ag secretary. He spent the time in between working for the dairy industry and... uh, not certainly not a reformer. So we'll we'll kind of see where things go. But I think I, I certainly am, am cautiously optimistic that we could see some progress first on research. So the USDA has a very large research budget, both devoting some of that toward alternative proteins, but also toward farm animal welfare improvements. Secondly, on humane slaughter, both improving the enforcement of the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act and extending that to cover chickens who are currently excluded from enforcement of that act. And third, on procurement standards, where the federal government buys a lot of meat. And so it could really do a lot to improve animal welfare through setting stronger standards for the procurement of that meat. Yeah. Yeah, you have some thoughts in that newsletter as to why it is that the Democratic Party doesn't really do very much about animal welfare, despite the fact that plenty of their voters, are, you know, <laughs> liberal suburbanites who are, who are very concerned about this, uh, this kind of thing. But I'll, uh, we won't cover that. I'll, I'll leave that for the audience to go and uh, motivate them to, to check out the newsletter, which, of course, we'll, we'll link to in the show notes. All right, uh, let's move on to a new section on social science. So yeah, last time we spent a while discussing how, uh, I guess, better run experiments had suggested that it was a whole bunch more expensive to convince someone to become vegetarian or vegan than we had previously thought when we kind of only had fairly low quality studies. I'm curious to know, yeah, what is the nature of the of the new evidence that has come out since 2017? And kind of how much, uh, how much more pessimistic is it than what we might have hoped? Yes, we don't have a ton of additional great evidence. I I think one common challenge for studies in this space is that we're dealing with a really small potential effect size and small potential effect size could still be worthwhile, but it's, it's really hard to pick up even in decently powered studies. So there have been a couple of exciting new studies, though, and I, I think um, kind of the most interesting four I'm aware of are a set of four studies focused on measuring actual meat consumption in dining halls at colleges in response to various interventions. So two of them looked at lectures, one of them looked at changing the menus, and the most recent one not yet published has looked at leafleting on that. And the four of them have found really mixed results. Uh, so uh, in three of the four, there were some significant results, and the fourth there was not. But in each case, those are largely short-term results, and so we don't know to what degree those effects endure. 
Yeah, interesting. I think you'd funded a, an attempted replication of a study and it had come back negative. What was that one? Yeah, so that was this was a study run by a group called Animal Welfare Action Lab, where they had pulled together people initially on MTurk and had them read articles and then measured the effect on their self-reported attitude toward farm animals and intention to to eat vegetarian and vegan, both initially and a month later. And they had found significant effects on that. We funded them to replicate that study on a larger platform and also to add, in addition to the article treatment, to add a video treatment. And unfortunately, they failed to find any significant effects on on any of those treatments relative to the control group. But still, of course, useful to know that that we don't have those uh, those significant effects that we, we thought we did. So hold on. So the four studies you were mentioning earlier, three of them found significant effects. So they were statistically significant, but small. Is that the issue? So the number needed to treat effectively is quite large. And so it doesn't seem like it's going to be cost effective to you know, focus on giving, giving lots of people lectures or giving them leaflets. Yeah, well, it, it could be. So I think the jury is, is still out. So two of them found relatively small results. Those were both uh, lecture-based studies. And the, the main challenge is that, first, it's it's hard to, to do that intervention, to, to get to have university students captive. They were basically able to because professors participated in, in this program and were able to inflict this on their students. And we saw immediate effects, what we don't know in those cases, are what happens months later. So we saw some some reasonably sized but short-term impacts. Yeah, so, so one of these, I think Peter Singer was involved and yeah, they, they were philosophy students and they got them, they randomised them between, I think, a series of lectures about the ethics of factory farming versus the ethics of some other issue, I can't remember, but nothing to do with, uh, nothing to do with food. And yeah, I think they found that the share of meals that the students then ordered at the cafeteria with meat fell by 15%, I think. So it was something from like 52% to 45% from memory. Which, I mean, I guess they, they reported that as kind of impressive because this was maybe the first time that anyone had shown that studying moral philosophy did anything to <laughs> change people's <laughs> moral behavior. Uh, I mean, I think that was in part because the, the topic hadn't been studied all that much. But yeah, you could, you could kind of, I suppose you could interpret that in a positive way. But as you're saying, it's a pretty intense intervention. <laughs> it would cost a lot to try to get students to go through that. So maybe it doesn't really scale that, that easily. Although I guess it at least provides proof of concept that information about the ethics of eating meat might be persuasive to at least some people. What about the leafleting one? Because that's one that people were so excited about earlier because it seemed like you, you just walk around a campus giving leaflets to people. It's so cheap per person that, you know, even if only one in a hundred or one in a thousand were, were persuaded, then it could be good value for money. Yes, yeah, so this, is, this is a really interesting one. This was, was they, they've just done a draft and I think it should be published soon. Uh, this was by Josh Tassoff and, and colleagues. They did a study where they, they had a, a kind of similar setup of, of a leafleting table and half the people got leaflets that had nothing to do with factory farming and the other half got, got leaflets that, that were factory farming related. And they were able to track the subsequent meat purchases of, of those people. And most impressively, they were able to track it over the course of two years. So they now have, have two years of data. So the unfortunate headline result was no statistically significant reduction in meat consumption over time. There were two interesting sub-results, which they did pre-register this, you know, that they were going to look at these. So, you know, worth worth considering. Uh, One was that they did see a short-term reduction in overall consumption of meat by men 
And then the other very unexpected result, and again, this is, this is just one result within the study, was that for women, they saw a substitution. So they didn't see an overall reduction. They saw a substitution from beef toward chicken, which is particularly troubling given these, these leaflets were about the animal harms on factory farms. And were, you know this was not climate messaging. This was not health messaging. And so if these two effects can be taken, you know, for real, if, if we can aggregate from them, the net effect of the intervention would be marginal, possibly slightly negative. <laughs> now, of course, this is just preliminary evidence. Both of those are sub-results within the broader group. I think the, the broader finding is any effect that does exist is, is pretty small. Yeah, for listeners who don't know, uh, once you start analysing lots of sub-questions, like, yeah, what, what was the exact effect on this subgroup of this uh, consumption of this particular subset of meat types, then uh, you're, you're at pretty substantial risk of getting false positives. So, yeah, seeing, seeing things that aren't really there. I suppose, I mean, there is a theory behind why uh, you could imagine that some people would substitute from beef to chicken. I think that this isn't maybe the first time this has ever been observed uh, when you talk about why meat is bad, uh, because for some reason people view beef as more more meaty than uh, than, than chicken and certainly than than. So if they have a negative effect towards meat, then they might just feel less bad about chicken for some reason, even though it's pretty clear that eating chicken is far worse from an animal welfare point of view. That's right. And the far stronger evidence on, on this substitution effect is at the population level. We've seen this over the last few decades. So in both the US and Europe, total per capita meat consumption is not really increasing. It's been pretty stagnant up and down a little bit over the last few decades. But we've seen a huge shift away from beef toward chicken. And there are potentially multiple factors behind that, but the the end net result has been far more animals being factory farmed than were previously. Yeah, every so often I'm uh, talking to someone who's outside of my immediate friendship group and I talk about animal stuff, and they uh, it's not uncommon to hear people say, "Oh, yeah, no, I'm not not fully vegetarian, but I like avoid eating beef." And I'm just like, <laughs> I think. <laughs> T- Ten years ago, I would bite on that very aggressively, but these days I've mostly just learned to. Uh, <laughs> but it's 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 not going to help, or maybe I'm just too tired of having that conversation. Um, all right, different thread is um, yeah. I read this fairly careful analysis from a researcher called uh, you might know how his name is pronounced, but uh, Saulius Shimchikas. Uh, I think it might be Czech name, or yeah, I'm not, not sure. But either way, uh, it was it was on the uh, Animal Charity Evaluator as a blog a couple of years ago. And it suggested that the fraction of Americans who choose not to eat meat at all seem to have barely budged in the last couple of decades, which a lot of people, including me, find somewhat kind of intuitive because it seems like people are talking more about vegetarianism uh, now than in the past. And if I, if I recall correctly, what they found was the number of people who identified as a vegetarian had been going up. So a lot more people kind of felt positively about vegetarianism. Again, more people aspired to be vegetarian, perhaps. But the trouble was when you then asked people, do you eat meat or not? It turned out that maybe was it three quarters or four fifths of people who identified as vegetarian said that they also ate meat, which is <laughs> a little bit baffling. Um, but yeah, uh, do you have a view on this question of whether there is an increasing number of people who decide to not eat meat or whether it's whether it's flat? Yeah, as you say, this is this is kind of counterintuitive and, and fascinating on on two levels. Yeah, one is is that the majority of vegetarians and vegans self described actually eat meat, and this is a very <laughs> robust finding across lots of, of surveys that most people who consider themselves vegetarians or, or vegans do eat meat at least sometimes. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to take it as, it's, as it's, it's just how just how like I'm, I'm Catholic, but I don't believe in God, nor do I go to church. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, carry on. One of of many similarities between Catholicism and and veganism. Uh, uh, (laughs) uh, But I I think the other other counterintuitive piece here is exactly that, that it seems like 
vegetarian and veganism are getting way more common in society. It feels like it, you know, there are, there are more products, people talk about it more. Just generally, it's, I mean, I can tell you on a personal level, having been vegan for 15 years now, that it's gotten way easier. I mean, it's, it's just easier being a vegan today. And yet the underlying data is pretty mixed on us of whether it's actually been increasing. And I think one challenge is just measuring something this small in population level data. So, you know, if you're surveying people and you're trying to measure, has something increased from 0.5% to 1% and the margin of error on the survey is 3%, uh, <laughs> you can have a lot yeah. of noise. Um, so, you know, I would, I would give everything a, a kind of grain of, of salt on this. But yeah, I think we don't have strong evidence either way, honestly. And um, I don't have a great <laughs> explanation for that. I think, you know, again, the positive here is that we are seeing, in spite of that, in spite of not seeing a very clear upward trend in, in vegetarianism and veganism, we are seeing a lot more attention to this topic. We're seeing a lot more product launches. We're seeing a lot of really exciting things in the space. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if what's going on is, like, people do just find it hard to eliminate meat completely. Or most, for most people, that's quite challenging. But more and more people aspire to do that and they're kind of making some significant inroads in doing it. So it could be that, you know, from memory, it was something crazy, like 5% of people identified as vegetarian, but then only 1% of people said that they never ate meat. I guess you could easily imagine that that, that other 4% are trying to make some significant effort to reduce their meat consumption. And I guess, that, but if it is only like 4% of the whole population, that kind of explains why we don't see large reductions in meat consumption at the total level. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's also an interesting dynamic where you constantly get survey results showing that most people or a substantial share of people say they're trying to reduce their meat consumption. And yet each year it either stays stagnant or, or goes up slightly. Um, and so, again, I think there's, there is potentially this kind of divide between people expressing an aspiration when they're asked about it or reflection and then what they actually do on a daily basis in terms of, of what they buy. And I guess it does get to the fact that this is just a deeply ingrained habit and it's also not something people are thinking about the ethics of, of a lot. So this is where I think the movement has made a wise decision to focus less on trying to convert lots of individual vegetarians and vegans and more on institutional level and technological level changes. So how do we get uh, institutional changes that are better for animals but also how do we get the, the technology in place because people, I think people have, I think the movement has reached realization that you can't rely on every single individual to make this moral choice three times a day that that alone is not going to get us to the place we want to be yeah just coming back to something you mentioned earlier you were worried about this kind of fade out issue that um you might be able to convince someone to become vegetarian like one week after a lecture about the topic but then uh, they're going to go back to uh, normal i mean that's very intuitive but do we have any evidence on kind of how quickly these effects of you know reading persuasive literature might might disappear as people <laughs> go back to their normal lives and uh, the people around them are eating meat and suddenly they 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 lose their enthusiasm yeah so we only have really weak data on this, largely because it's really hard to keep studying people over an extended period of, of time. Obviously, your response rates go down, you get more of a problem with who's responding to you in the later surveys. So, you know, one, one benefit of this new study I mentioned is with the dining hall data, is that they have that data on everyone for two years. And uh, at least in that case, the even limited impacts they saw within those subgroups fade out within a few months, unfortunately. So we're not seeing prolonged changes based on the leaflets in that context. Now, we don't really know when it comes to lectures. We don't know other things. Obviously, anecdotally, plenty of people who seeing a lecture or getting a leaflet or all kinds of things led to lifelong changes. But I think we really do not have good data on long-term impacts of these kinds of interventions. Yeah, I mean... 
I do know other people, I mean, in addition to knowing people who've become vegetarian forever because they read something, I also know people who uh, stopped eating meat for a while or reduced it and then uh, went back to normal. So it's, it's easy to stop eating meat. I've done it dozens of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another, another line of research is Sentience Institute ran this survey a couple of years ago where it was just this shocking number of people who were, said that they were in principle willing to vote to end factory farming, to just ban it outright. Uh, yeah, they found that was it 33% of people supported a ban on animal farming and 54% were trying to con- consume fewer animal-based foods and pl- more plant-based foods. Actually, oh, another thing is you recently tweeted a study that suggested an astounding fraction of uh, 85% of Americans who said that they had farming experience supported a ban on new factory farms. Mm. <laughs> um, what, what, what do you make of these kinds of uh, survey results? Yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's a tough one. I mean, I think one general challenge is when you survey people on questions they're not thinking about you get some weird results. And, you know, you have these kind of political, uh, sort of funny political surveys where they ask people about their belief in ghosts yeah. and UFOs and things, and you get all kinds of, of interesting results. There's a famous survey where they uh, asked people whether they supported bombing Agrabah, which you may <laughs> recall was the city from Aladdin. And I think uh, 10% of Americans said that they did support bombing Agrabah. <laughs> yeah, I like the, Carry the, on. There was one about whether uh, Ted Cruz is the Zodiac killer. And I think 40 to 50% of American city is. Uh, so the, uh, yeah, this... yeah. Not the worst thing about him, though. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think looking at the survey, I mean, first I would say this survey result really surprised me. And it also surprised me, you know, my initial reaction was, well, this isn't going to replicate. And then it did replicate. Someone replicated it. So, you know, take everything else I say with a grain of salt based on my (laughs) failure to predict these results. I think it's worth noting on the ban on factory farming question, which I think was actually higher than 33%, had some level of support, but only 9% strongly agreed was was the, the term in the survey. And I remember when we used to do ballot measures at the Humane Society of the US, we had a threshold of... For bringing a ballot measure, you want to see higher than 60% total support, but it was also you want to see greater than 50% saying they strongly agree. And the basic theory was that the strongly agrees are the people who stick with you um, and the other people are very amenable to how much advertising gets spent. So this sort of leads me to think we probably shouldn't be putting this on, on ballot measure questions anytime soon, particularly, of course, a ban on factory farming would provoke a huge onslaught of advertising from industry and would be a, a weird case where I think the other thing going on in these surveys is people don't necessarily understand what they're, what they're saying. So, for instance, in the same survey, vast majority of people agreed, over 60% strongly agreed that the decision to eat meat is a personal choice. And yet we're also saying we should ban the means of creating that meat. Um, so I think that people maybe, when confronted with that reality, you might see their opinions change quite a bit on this. Yeah. I'm very interested to see a ballot initiative anyway. I just want to see it done somewhere to see what would happen. I mean, I think we would learn a lot about what would be the reaction of people, what would be the reaction of industry. It seems worth worth trying once just as a learning experience. So, yeah, you're, you're, you're partially in luck. In, in Switzerland, there is a ballot initiative to ban factory farming uh, that is, is in the works. Awesome. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a different situation because in Switzerland it has the world's highest farm animal welfare standards already. It has, I think, the most benign version of, of factory farming that exists anywhere. But they are pushing for a complete ban. And I should note it's also it's a 25-year phase-out, uh, which is what they've judged necessary to, to make this politically feasible. But that will be in the next, in the next few years they'll be, they'll be putting that on the ballot. Wow. Okay, yeah, great. I look forward to, to seeing how that goes. Are they planning to ban imports as well? Because I could imagine maybe they would get, a, get out of this just by importing the products that they can no longer make domestically. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So yes, they do have an import uh, component too. And, and I think there are some details on, on how far you can go on that. They're going to seek equivalency rather than applying 
actual Swiss standards to imports. But yeah, as you say, it's very important with these kinds of things that you also cover imports so you, so you don't just uh, undercut the local producers and, and bring in all the lower welfare stuff from elsewhere. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll look up a new story or a Wikipedia article about that and, and we can link to that. Look forward to seeing how that plays out. How has the quality of social science in this kind of animal field changed over the last five years? Has it, has it continued to improve? My impression is that it's getting more rigorous. I think that's right. I think that's definitely right. Yeah, I think we've seen some really rigorous new approaches to this, both in terms of of original studies, like some of the ones we discussed using real dining hall data rather than self-reports of of, uh, people, but also in secondary research and combining that work. So for instance, the work that Rethink Priorities has been doing or Faunalytics, I think there's been a lot of work going back, looking at some of these earlier studies, saying, okay, what are the problems? What in here can we actually rely on aggregating data from different sources? So yeah, I think we've seen a real improvement on that front. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. Okay, you've got, you've got me uh, optimistic and energized here. Uh, it, seems like things, it seems like things are going pretty well. Let's talk more a bit more in an open-ended sense about what we've learned over the last four years in this area. I, I guess back in 2017, you were like much, much newer to uh, open philanthropy. And, and it felt to me like the animal movement was, uh, I guess, less professionalized perhaps than it is now. And, and just like less, less resources had, got, had gone into it. So I'm kind of curious to know, yeah, what have we learned in this kind of era of expansion and professionalization of the movement? And I guess uh, you through making all of these grants and trying to, trying to figure out how to do the most good with the, with the, grant, with the money that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think one thing we've learned, yeah, is, is the need to professionalize, as, as you <laughs> noted. I think groups have made a lot of progress in terms of, for instance, getting independent boards, paying their staff more sustainable salaries, focusing on, on building out organizations from the kind of shoestrings operations that a lot of them were just a few years ago. I think a second thing that we have learned tactically is the importance of focusing on implementation of animal welfare pledges more heavily in addition to to securing those pledges. I think when we last spoke, I was overly optimistic that a lot of pledges would implement themselves. and and, And I think we have seen that to a certain degree in Europe. But what we're certainly seeing in the US is Although there have recently been promising signs, for instance, on catering implementation, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And we know the retailers are not just going to implement their promises on their own. They're going to need a combination of handholding and, in some cases, campaigning uh, to really bring them to the point of, of implementing those pledges. Right. Okay, let's go through those two. So the first one is professionalization. We talked briefly uh, back in our interview. I re-listened to our interview from 2017, so it's somewhat fresh in my mind. Yeah, we talked about how it had been the case that traditionally the animal movement, I guess it had relied a lot on volunteers and a lot of people who were willing to work for very little money, which I guess often meant somewhat younger, perhaps inexperienced people. And I guess people who's, for whom their work in the animal movement is kind of the primary thing in their life rather than perhaps a, a side hustle or something that, they, that they're just doing in between, other, in between other kind of professional careers. Has that professionalization played out and had the benefits in the, in the same way that you expected? And kind of, yeah, what is the mechanism by which increasing salaries and perhaps professionalizing the industry like, changes what you're able to do and how likely you are to succeed? Yeah, so I, I think that there is a real challenge on this for any movement that as you grow, you, you both want to maintain that passion that brings people in in the first place and the motivation that gives them the drive. But you also want to create structures that enable people to work on this issue sustainably for the long term. And I think that groups have been working on on trying to establish those structures, the boards, the better pay and so on, so that people can really envisage this as something they could do for their entire career. So people aren't burning out after a few years, people aren't 
running into repeated management problems. At the same time, conscious to not just become a huge established nonprofit or bureaucracy with all the problems that that can entail. And I think we're still pretty far away from that. I mean, the groups are still tiny in the scheme of, of nonprofits out there. But definitely, yeah, I think that's been a, that's been a challenge for the groups. Yeah, I guess I would have imagined that in as much as salaries are very low and a lot of the input is coming through volunteers or so as recent graduates, maybe that just kind of limits the sorts of projects that you can take on because there might be some things you can only do if someone's willing to stick, like if you're willing to have people stick around for decades. And also it, maybe if you're able to hire people in their 40s and 50s and 60s who have enough experience to pull off something that's just more more challenging. Yeah, do you think that's that's been an impact? Are, are people trying to do different things now? I think they are. I think they are. And I think one thing there's been a recognition of is the need for greater expertise. So the movement traditionally was very fueled by generalists who were very passionate. And I think there's still a huge amount of value to generalists entering the space. There's a lot of things in the movement that can easily be learned. But I think people have recognized that there is value to bringing in expertise, both in specific technical areas like animal welfare science, but also just in areas like management and in running uh, larger organizations. And that does often require bringing across people further along in their career, uh, people who, who manage to be paid somewhat more, and also ensuring that those people have the support that they're used to working at a larger organization. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, yeah, let's talk about the uh, issue of companies following through on their, on their commitments to change how the animals uh, whose products and um, flesh they're selling are raised. Yeah, we talked about this in 2017. People were raising the possibility that these companies would make these commitments that say, oh, sure, in the in 2020, far in the future, we'll, we'll make these changes. But then they would complain at the time, oh, no, it's not the right moment. Uh, it's We can't source enough, come up with excuses and then push it out. And by then, perhaps the activist groups have dispersed and are no longer focused on them and they managed to get away with it. Yeah, to what extent has that happened? And how much are people managing to re- return the focus and hold people accountable for what they said they'll do? Yeah, so I think this has been a really mixed picture and it's definitely been somewhere where we have learned. So I'd say first on the negative side, we have seen a number of major companies, particularly major retailers in the US, not making much progress toward implementing their pledges. And for the most part, those pledges were to go 100% cage-free by 2025 or 2026, but there were no milestones. So from their perspective, they're not violating their pledges. They say like, yeah, we're going to go 100%. It's just, it's only, uh, it's only 2021. So don't worry. But you know, right now they, they're somewhere between 10 and 20% and uh, does not seem like they are, are on track. So that's going to be a major challenge getting those companies. On the, on the positive side there, first, we are now at 28% of the US flock is cage-free up from 6% in 2015. Um, Whoa, so that's a big shift. That is a big shift. Yeah, that's that's over 70 million hens newly out of cages over the last few years. And that has been driven by some companies that have made really impressive progress. So Costco, which is the second largest retailer in the US, is now over 95% cage rate. We have Nestle and a number of other major brands that have already implemented their cage-free pledges. And we have the majority of companies that are being asked to report by Compassion and World Farming in its egg track report are now reporting. So for instance, Walmart, Kroger, some of these big companies are reporting. The percentages are too low, but they are publicly reporting where they're at. And we have other companies that are publicly reporting and are on track. So McDonald's, for instance, is on track to meet its commitment on time. So yeah, I would say very mixed signs and definitely a recognition by the groups that they need to focus more attention on this. 
Yeah, my attention is drawn to this Costco thing. So Costco, over 90%. I would have thought Costco is very focused on being cheap. That's kind of their their, their <laughs> whole thing. It surprises me somewhat that they've they've gone ahead of the competition on this. Why Yeah, why, why did they make that change? And I guess, how have they gotten around perhaps the impediments that, that other groups have faced in scaling up and, and sourcing all of the, the cage-free uh, exit they would like? Yeah, I think Costco is actually a really interesting story because they were the first major retailer to be campaigned against by groups. This was back in 2015. And they were a huge holdout. This was over a six-month-long campaign. It featured Brad Pitt writing them a letter. There was a New York Times op-ed by Bill Maher. It was a major campaign. And they kept holding out on making a commitment. And when they eventually did make a commitment, they were very careful not to publicly attach a year to it. But in private, they told advocates, we'll do this really soon. And you would sort of think that might be a bad setup. <laughs> like, 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 yeah, exactly. But in, in actuality, they, they did. And so they uh, impressively, they, they not only did really prioritize doing it, They've also made huge progress in other markets where they haven't even made any promises. So we've seen, for instance, in Mexico, their majority cage-free. Costco has made significant progress in European markets that they hadn't made pledges on, is making progress in Asian markets. And so I think it's, yeah, I think it's really just a great example of if a company does apply itself to this task, does take it seriously, then it can absolutely do this. And I think in particular, it's a great example to take to other companies that, you know, if this huge retailer very focused on price can do this, then clearly they can too. Yeah, it's kind of a deep general question. How much does any, like, does does individual human agency and values matter in, in business? Have you seen any cases where someone in one of these companies, say like a, a top level manager or, or CEO at Costco, actually just thinks that cage hens is uh, that is that is brutal and unacceptable, and they would and they would prefer to get away from it quickly? Where that has kind of made a difference, or is it more bottom line focused, profit focused, and people don't have so much discretion in their in their jobs? Yeah, I think it varies a lot, but I really do think there are a lot of people within companies who are trying to do the right thing, and depending on the company, they have various levels of discretion to do that. One positive example on that would be Purdue Farms. They're the fourth largest US chicken producer. And they did have a number of campaigns targeted at them back in in, uh, the 2000s and and the 2010s. So certainly I'm sure that that played a role. But what we've seen over the last few years is they have gone way ahead of the other companies on animal welfare. They're recently reporting that I think about a quarter of their chickens now have outdoor access, which is way beyond what any other industrial chicken producer is doing. Majority of their hens are in barns with natural light. They've been working on stocking density. They've been working on genetics huge amount of progress on those things. And again, definitely there was there was pressure. But I think when you look at the leadership of Purdue, it really does seem like they've decided this is the right thing to do. And they're, they're really committed to it. Do you think perhaps they're thinking, well, this is going to happen eventually anyway. So maybe we can have it like even if it's costly now, we'll be ahead of the curve and it'll be easier for us later on when, when other companies are, are coming around and, and making these changes later. Yes, I think that's definitely part of the case. And and it's it's true, for instance, that Purdue has traditionally sold primarily to food service and some higher value uses. So their customers are more likely to care about this than uh, the customers of, of some chicken companies. But yeah, I think so I think from a business perspective, certainly they're trying to get ahead of trying to get ahead of the curve. And uh, yeah, I think that that hopefully will put them in, 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 a, in a good position in the years ahead. Yeah. Do any of these companies use this as kind of a selling point? Does Costco advertise? So, you know, it's great that we've mostly managed to eliminate cages from our egg supply. As far as I know, they, they don't. And I, I yeah. can I can see why. why. 
Yeah, which is, I mean, it, it, it first uh, begs the question of, of why you didn't, you know, do this, do this sooner. But it also uh, just draws attention to the continuing problems. So, you know, as we discussed last time, cage-free is far from perfect. Industrial cage-free systems still have lots of animal welfare problems. And so I think because for most companies, they're still so far from a place on animal welfare that their consumers would actually find defensible, um, that they're probably not going to be inclined to advertise where they are are at. Yeah, this is actually a very general issue sometimes where you you want a a company to make the product better in in some way and you think well can't they use it as a selling point and then you realize oh no they can't because like even raising the issue is fundamentally problematic i think there there was an era when car companies were less motivated to make their cars safer because pointing out that they'd made this safety improvement at least they were worried about and maybe at the time when driving was was more dangerous it really was a concern that pointing out (laughs) pointing out that they'd improved the safety would raise the question of how dangerous cars are and it turns out very dangerous so uh, not (laughs) it actually just like taints the uh, the product that they're trying to sell with this negative aspect that that rather just people pay no attention to. Yeah, that's I mean that's that's definitely I've I've seen some of these marketing summits, for instance, of of what poultry industry executives tell one another to, to to say. And the general thing is is try not to talk about animal welfare. You know, talk about our efficiency gains, tell another story. But even if you're talking about progress you're making on animal welfare, it's still so far worse than where consumers think things are already, that you're just going to draw attention to that to that disconnect. Right, right. Okay, so we talked about uh, two areas where we've learned a bunch, which is uh, yeah, around professionalization and risk of corporations not following through on their commitments. Are there, are there any other kind of uh, big areas where we've learned something? Well, I think on alternative proteins, we've learned about the potential growth of the market. So, I mean, I, I definitely did not predict that the Beyond Meat IPO would be such a huge success. And uh, I did not predict that we would have Beyond and Impossible Burgers in so many places. Or, or another example would be in China, where three of the largest fast food chains, Starbucks, Decos, KFC, have all made major plant-based meat plays in the last year. Those are things I definitely didn't see coming. And, and I think to me are really positive updates in terms of the potential for plant-based meat to take on significant market share. Yeah. Do we have kind of a, a model of why this has run ahead of expectations? Or yeah, what, so if things are going better than, than we thought, kind of what, what did we misunderstand about the situation to start with? Yeah. So I think for me, a lot of my predictions start with the base case, right? And so, you know, I mentioned to you when we last spoke, US retail sales of plant-based meat had been increasing by one to 3% per year. And, you know, there were definitely reasons to think that would increase, but to expect that growth rate to increase five to six X as it did, um, you know, requires. And and I think one thing that's tricky in the plant-based meat space in particular is there isn't great underlying data. So, you know, there isn't great data on the scale of the global market. There isn't great data on these things. A lot of the kind of fundamentals are relatively hard to divine. Um, And so, yeah, you're, you're forced to kind of go on this combination of people saying, hey, there's this potential. We have these new products that seem better qualitatively. We have a few different data points, but then trying to plug that together and work out what does that mean in terms of the the future forecast. Yeah, I think that's the challenge. Does this maybe say there could be kind of discontinuities where you can have, say, you're improving the product bit after bit, but it's still well below perhaps the tastiness of of meat for most consumers. And so it's still only the diehards who are, who are eating it until you get to the point where it's approaching parity or uh, it's like it's not too far off. And then suddenly you get this very rapid growth takeoff. And so it's, just, it's like not linear changes in market share. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think that definitely fits with what we've seen from Beyond and Impossible. And I do think that Beyond and Impossible really do look like a step change in that regard, both just 
qualitatively in, in taste tests, people report those products being substantially better than other plant-based meats. But also they're kind of unique in the plant-based meat ecosystem in that they have invested so heavily in research and development. Both of them took years focused on research and development before they came to market at all. And they really did have significant innovations in their products where a lot of other plant-based meats on the market are using very similar processes, very similar ingredients. So I do think it's a real update in favor of the importance of actual technical innovation in that space and the potential to create, as you say, something of, of, a, of a step change. Yeah, I guess one of those is a public company now and one of them still privately held. But is there any way that we can look at how much they've spent in total on technical food science R&D over the course of their existence and maybe um, think about how much that compares to what had been spent before and, and what we'd gotten out of that incremental increase? Yeah, so the, there are kind of rough estimates because, as you say, it's so beyond is is the public one. And, and I think that they have disclosed over $100 million spent on, on research and, and development but I think less than, than $200 million. In the case of Impossible, it's, it's harder to say because they are still private, but potentially they have spent upwards of $200 million on, on this challenge. It's hard to separate out, obviously, the work you're spending on building a new production facility or a pilot facility, how much of that is R&D, how much of, of the other stuff. But certainly it's the case that both of them have much larger teams of scientists than we, <laughs> than we see anywhere else and have also just pioneered improvements that seem much more substantial than we've seen anywhere else. So hundreds of millions, I mean, that's a lot. I, oh, uh, I, I don't really know what the standard is for, <laughs> for food science. I mean, how, many, how much does Nestle spend on product innovation? I guess it's a fair bit, but it seems like, you know, we could, in theory, 10x that. You know, the economy is much bigger than that, and there's, like, much more than that spent on R&D in general and, and food in general. So I guess maybe that bodes well, that if this, if this market keeps growing and people continue to, to buy more and more of these products, maybe we could be spending a billion dollars a year in, in principle on, uh, on R&D in this area. I, I hope so. Yeah, I really hope so. I mean, I, I think there's an interesting analogy from clean energy where you've seen major investments of R&D there and gets to the importance of having not just reliance on private companies, but also having public funding for that R&D because a lot of it needs to be longer term, needs to be more patient. The other thing I think it speaks to is the need to have patient investors and the need to have that business model that allows for that. So I mentioned, I think within the plant-based side, these are the only two companies we've really seen investors that have allowed a company to spend that much money on R&D. And so one thing I would love to see is more R&D heavy companies moving forward, more companies taking years before they go to market, focusing on, on some of those key innovations. Yeah. How are they going on the manufacturing slash production side? Because I'm always trying to buy these things. And at least in the UK, they're so often sold out. I can't get the, the fake meats that I want, which I guess is a positive side in some ways. But maybe it's just that they're having trouble just growing as quickly as, as consumers are gaining interest. That's right. Yeah, I think it's been a real challenge. And I think this has been a really interesting piece for a lot of these companies have taken on the model of tech startups. But a huge difference with tech startups is that you're producing this physical product and you need to produce a lot of it and you need to distribute it to lots of different locations. And they really struggle with that. And I think two positive developments we've seen on that. So the traditional model that plant-based meat companies used was very reliant on using co-manufacturers, which are general facilities that, that make all kinds of different products. And if you're a small plant-based meat company, you're not going to get priority at those facilities. What, what would happen is Beyond Meat would get a few shifts, so then another company comes on, takes a few shifts, and they weren't able to adjust production. 
So the first thing we're seeing is we're seeing both Beyond and Impossible have invested in their own production facilities. And the challenge with that is that that's infrastructure. That's really capital intensive. And so most companies aren't able to raise the hundreds of millions of dollars to build those new facilities. Thankfully, both of them now have access to the capital to do that. The second thing we're seeing is more plant-based meat-focused contract manufacturing. So for instance, in in the UK, the world's largest plant-based meat-focused contract manufacturing facility just opened. And the hope is that the more we see those, the more we'll see plants that can really focus on these challenges, can prioritize it, and can also help with process improvements focused on plant-based meat. Interesting. People have told me that uh, so Impossible and Beyond Burger, not only have they designed a better product, but they've also spent a bunch more time thinking about marketing and how to make this product appealing to to, to a broader audience and trying to make it cool in a way that I think uh, veggie burgers previously weren't. Yeah. How, how big a role do you think that has played? Yeah, I think it's probably played a really, a really big role. I'm definitely no expert on marketing, <laughs> but two things stand out. So in the case of Beyond, they did a lot of work seeking the endorsement of athletes which I think has been really significant in changing the perception of plant-based meat from something that is is just for health nuts or is just for people who you know aren't highly physically active, aren't into strength and all those kinds of things. The other thing we've seen from Impossible was working with celebrity chefs and working with top restaurants and getting the buzz that that gave in the food community, which traditionally plant-based meats were not known for sort of wowing food reviewers for getting in, into the culinary scene. And so I think that too probably played a played a major role. Nice. Yeah, so I noticed that we've almost exclusively been talking about plant-based uh, meat. What's going on with cellular agriculture? I guess, yeah, the, uh, what do people call it these days? I, I remember, so, so 2018, I interviewed Bruce Friedrich, who's someone who promotes this study, and he chewed me out for not being willing to say clean meat, which is apparently the, the new term that everyone was meant to use. But uh, I feel like I don't hear clean meat as much anymore, so I'm not sure. What, is it, I guess, alternative proteins? What's, what, what's the party line on the, on the right terminology? <laughs> yeah, I don't know the party line. I think that... Uh, <laughs> There are a lot of acceptable terms. So cultured meat, uh, clean meat, cell-based meat. uh, There is, uh, yeah, whatever whatever works for you. Whatever works. Okay, all right. Yeah, all right. So what's going on with clean meat? So, yeah, we've seen some really exciting developments, I think. One has been in Singapore, the regulators approving the first cultured meat product for sale to the general public. And while the scale of that initial product is, is very small, I think it does really augur well for regulators approving a path to market in other geographies as well. I think a second thing we're seeing is a lot more money going into the space. So Memphis Meats uh, has raised over $100 million for its continued research in the space, which I think is very exciting. And then the third thing is, is seeing a lot more work in cellular agriculture outside of just meat. So Clara Foods, for instance, which is working on egg proteins, or Perfect Day, which is working on dairy proteins, seems to be making a lot of progress, again, raising raising a lot of funding on that side too. Yeah, haven't really thought before. So, so eggs are not, they're not cells that are constructed in the normal way that a muscle is. And I guess milk neither. It's like, it's biological in some sense, but it feels like it's an extrusion of something that a cell produces. So I'm not quite sure. How, how do you make that in a cellular agriculture sense? Yeah, so I'll, I'll definitely defer to the uh, scientists <laughs> or uh, companies on the, on the, uh, the, the, the expertise here. But, but I think the, um, the, the broad thing is using a fermentation or you know, using bioreactors and recreating the cells. 
you know, one thing that I think is often missed in the discussion about cellular agriculture is people just have this image of, you know, you need to put together, structure cells together into slabs of meat. And, and that's one thing you can do. But the, the, the basic process of working at the level of cells, getting cells to replicate, getting cells potentially to perform new functions. So, I mean, another interesting example of this is in some sense, uh, Impossible Foods is using cellular agriculture because they're getting cells to perform a new function for the heme iron in Impossible Burgers. So there's a lot of things that cellular agriculture can do, not just at the full product level, but also at a functional uh, ingredient level, which I, I think science gets gets missed. Makes sense. Yeah. Do you know what the uh, big technical challenges are in clean meat these days? I think I, I've heard stuff about uh, you know getting the texture right in the way that the cells kind of combine because they don't you know when you put them in a bioreactor they don't form tissue in the normal way or that that can be tricky. And I guess there's also um the bioreactors it's like easy for them to get invaded by bacteria or, or fungi that want to grow in there because it's obviously such, such a conducive medium. So you got to ensure that pathogens stay out. Yeah. Are you, are you up to date on that or is that a bit outside of your area? Yeah, we actually have a new report on this that we commissioned by a chemical engineering consultant, Dave Humbird, and he goes through a number of the key challenges. But one of the key ones that he focuses on is getting bioreactors to have the necessary scale while also maintaining the biosecurity. So what you were alluding to of ensuring the cells remain completely uh, sterile within that setting while getting scale and without increasing the costs too heavily. All right. We've talked about things that have gone well and I guess things that we've just generally learned over the last four years. Let's talk now about uh, the ugly or the things that haven't gone quite as well as uh, have been hoped. Yeah. What maybe hasn't gone to plan or has proven more difficult than we thought, I guess, other than trying to get uh, companies to follow through on their on their commitments? Yeah. So I think there are a number of areas that have proven a bit more challenging than, we had, than we'd hoped. One that I would highlight would be in India. I think that there have been more delays than we'd hoped for. So one of the most exciting things there has been ongoing battery cage litigation. And one thing that advocates have achieved is a national moratorium on new battery cages across all of India, which is in place. We were hoping we would also see a ruling by now on potentially banning battery cages or at least requiring substantial reforms and a combination of egg producers pursuing delaying tactics, which turns out to be quite easy through the Indian judiciary, and then COVID having a major impact and and derailing litigation in the country has slowed things down substantially, unfortunately. Okay, let's just back up a second. Um, so India, in theory, has banned battery cages. Why is that? Is that just generally consistent with India's India being more progressive on animal uh, animal well being than the most other countries? Yeah, so India is fascinating in that it has one of the strongest animal welfare laws in the world, really. Uh, and this dates back to the 1960s. And that law specifically says that farm animals need to have enough space to turn around to move to fulfill all their basic behavioural needs. So the litigation that advocates brought a number of years ago argues that the practice of battery cages is fundamentally inconsistent with that law, that, that under existing Indian law, battery cages should be illegal. And so far, the courts have largely agreed with advocates. They've issued a number of preliminary rulings saying they agree that that law appears to, to ban cages. Where we're at currently is they have issued a moratorium on new cages. They have not issued a ban on existing cages. Huh. What's the legal idea behind that? Because you'd think if the law says it has to be this way, there wouldn't be a distinction between existing ones and new ones. Yeah, so this is the the challenge of never-ending litigation of this going through the courts, is that this is still an active case before the courts. 
So the rationale of the courts is we'll, we'll put an injunction on new cages while we decide this matter because we are inclining toward thinking. But, you know, we're not going <laughs> to um, require everyone to remove their cages well, it's still possible we'll rule that their cages are just fine or, or we'll rule something else. So the challenge is that it's it's long-running litigation. It's been going on for over five years now, and um, there's not an immediate end in sight. Uh, do we now think that maybe the courts will decide that cages are okay, or is it more just that we're finding that it's going to potentially take an extremely long time to wind up these court battles because they're going to manage to delay at every, at every opportunity, so to, we'll just have to grind them down every years or decades? Yeah, I think these are all challenges. So I think one challenge is that the egg industry is is clearly banking on keeping this in the courts for as long as, as possible, and there being no action to get rid of cages during that time. The second challenge is that egg producers are now pushing for a compromise where they say, we accept that the current battery cages don't meet the law, but we'll make the cages a little bit bigger and then the animals can at least move around, and and we think that meets the law. And the court hasn't ruled on that yet, and so I don't know what they can ultimately think. My biggest concern on that would then be on the enforcement challenge. I mean, obviously, first of all, it would be great if they just ban cages entirely, but even if they were to issue, say, for instance, cages need to be twice as big, need to be a lot better in a lot of ways, that could make a real difference for animals if it was enforced. But we've had huge challenges with enforcement of existing animal welfare regulations in India, and it's going to be very hard for regulators to ensure that that every farm is keeping animals at exactly the density they're supposed to versus just checking whether they're using cages or not, which is a far easier easier thing to verify. Yeah. Okay, so I guess this is very important just because, well, in part because India is such a huge country, there's so many people, and I guess they eat a decent number of eggs, and they're going to be eating even more in the future, probably. So maybe, maybe like the number of eggs produced in India is almost as large as all of these corporate campaigns that we've discussed combined. And so it's, oh, I mean, I guess, do you have a sense of how large it is by comparison? Yeah, it's huge. So it's it's about 400 million laying hens. It's the second okay. largest laying hen population after China and in front of, of the US. So yeah, huge, huge potential scale there. And that's also obviously been increasing too. So so there's also that, that growth rate to take account of. So this is proven more difficult than we hoped. What's the, what's the response to that? Do we kind of double down and put even more resources into it in order to win? Or is it one where maybe you think, oh, this is not as tractable as we thought, so maybe we'll, uh, we'll give up? So I don't think we're giving up, but I I think advocates have been looking at ways to increase momentum for other angles. Unfortunately, I think it's pretty hard to just speed up the litigation process, particularly when COVID is driving some of those some of those delays. So instead, advocates have been working first with some companies to, to get some more corporate pledges in India. That's harder because the corporate sector is far more fragmented. There aren't huge retailers with the same kind of market share as we see in the US. They've also been working, for instance, with the Law Commission, getting a report from the Law Commission, endorsing an end to cages, working with a number of other authorities on getting them to endorse this, getting state authorities, working with the banks to ensure that they are, are not financing new battery cage facilities that violate the moratorium. So there are a lot of other things advocates have been doing in the meantime, but I think unfortunately a lot of this does just depend on what happens on the, on the litigation front. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else notable that's been harder than we thought that we can learn from? Yeah, I think another another challenge has been on the broiler welfare campaigns in the US. So this is kind of interesting in that we've actually seen more progress recently in Europe than I expected. So I, I think I mentioned in France, the largest seven retailers have all now committed 
to implementing the higher welfare for the welfare ask that groups are pushing for. We've also seen commitments from companies like Aldi in Europe, from Pizza Hut, from KFC in the UK, so, so major brands. In the US, we have seen less progress in the last few years. It's, it's proven a bit harder. And I think that's been in part due to uncertainty on the breeds. There's, there's been a major question mark around what higher welfare breeds will be required through the ask. And I think it's also just been that it turns out companies buy a lot of chicken and even small increases in price are significant. And the other thing I would, I would say is that I actually think it's turned out the producers' resistance is really important here. So you have a number of major producers that are basically refusing to offer higher welfare chicken to their corporate customers. So you, you've got companies going to Tyson, Sanderson Farms, Pilgrims, the three biggest chicken producers, and saying, we want you to implement these changes. And those companies are so heavily concentrated that they're able to just say no. They're able to say, no, we're not doing it, and neither are these other big ones, and you won't be able to find any chicken if you want to do this, so screw you. Which, on the egg side, we never saw anything like that, um, and that's been an added, added challenge for advocates. Yeah, why is that? Why are they doing this in this case, but not with the not with the eggs? So I think the biggest explanation is market concentration, which can be a mixed bag on the on the retail and fast food chart side. Market concentration can actually be helpful in that you you want enough big brands that can push their suppliers to make these changes. But on the producer side. It means that the producers on the chicken side, and I should clarify, I mean the agribusinesses, not the actual people producing the chickens who are very powerless in this situation. The producers have a huge amount of power. The industry is so concentrated that it is just the case that if you are a nationwide chain, you might be dependent on Tyson or Sanderson Farms. And it's very hard to switch your supply. In the egg industry, by contrast, in the US, it's far more fragmented, far more smaller producers. And so if a producer said, we're not going to do this, and I'm sure a few of them did, very easy for a company to say, cool, we're just going to switch to a different producer. They can kind of do that do that overnight. All right. Yeah, moving on to something else. Back in 2017, we spoke about trying to foster animal movements in kind of emerging countries like China and India and, and, and South America. And at the time, you remarked on the fact that it's interestingly, it seemed like despite contrary to expectations, perhaps people in South America were extremely interested in content about animal well-being and factory farming. Yeah, I'm curious to know how have things been going in each of those locations? Have they met expectations? Yeah, I think they, they have for the most part. So I would say first in uh, Brazil, we have seen some really exciting progress. The three largest retailers, GPA, Carrefour and Walmart, have all committed to going cage-free. The largest pork producers in Brazil have not only committed to phasing out gestation crates, but have also made progress on castration and tail docking that is far ahead of where the US pork industry is at. So we're actually seeing Brazilian pork producers doing a lot better than US pork producers. And we're generally seeing, I think, a very vibrant movement there. Things have proven harder in Mexico. In Mexico, in general, it's been harder to get corporate commitments. Companies have proven more litigious, much more likely to just sue advocates whenever they get campaigned against. And you've seen it just being a lot harder to make momentum in Mexico. And then the rest of Latin America, I think it's been really kind of has been mixed, but we've seen some really promising progress in Colombia and Argentina with a number of major corporate pledges recently. So I'm, I'm optimistic uh, about seeing further progress there. Yeah. Have we learned anything about kind of the, the culture there or to, to try to explain why it is that South America seems quite receptive to these ideas, or at least some countries aren't? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that some of it just fits with Latin America being relatively wealthier than 
other parts of the world and obviously the wealthier uh, region is in general that it enables more progress on these kinds of issues. I think otherwise it's, it's hard to generalise. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it does come down to the advocates in a country. It comes down to the corporate culture and how receptive they are to corporate social responsibility in general and animal welfare in particular. And it perhaps also just comes down to attitudes on environmental issues and related issues like that that I think impact a lot of a lot of sentiment on animal welfare. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, how about China? Yeah. So China, I think we're seeing some steady uh, but exciting progress. So on the on the animal welfare side, we have seen a number of small to medium producers making animal welfare commitments. And in particular, Compassion and World Farming has been working with companies on giving them awards to improve their practices. They have a good chicken award, a good pig award to raise their standards. On the alternative protein side, we're seeing not just companies interested in this, but also seeing interest from the government in encouraging investment in plant-based protein. And I think that is partly motivated by wanting to keep up with a global trend on this and wanting China to be at the sort of head of the to be ahead of things internationally. But the other the other interesting trend I think we're seeing is a food security motivation where China in the last few years, in addition to COVID supply shocks, has also had African swine fever and about half of the pig herd in China died off. And China after that saw major shortages of of pork and proteins. And so we're seeing a lot of interest in plant proteins ability to be a more secure source of protein to diversify away from, from complete reliance on pork. That's amazing. Yeah, in India, apart from these legal issues, has there been any luck kind of fostering, you know, activism and greater visibility for animal welfare? I suppose it sounds like it might be one of the leading countries in the world on this uh, anyway. Yeah, so I think there's a there's a really vibrant movement in India. And we're seeing a lot of advocates really interested in advancing animal welfare. And I think we're seeing a lot of local progress in terms of drawing attention to animal welfare. Interestingly, we're not seeing increasing meat consumption in, in India. So both about a third of, of people are vegetarian. But even amongst the two thirds that are not vegetarian, we're not seeing this huge increase in meat consumption that we have seen, for instance, in Indonesia, that we have seen in countries across Southeast Asia as they've grown grown wealthier. And yeah, I think we are also seeing a lot of interest on the alternative protein side. We're seeing the Indian government put some money recently into cultured meat research. We've seen some interest, uh, some new plant-based meat startups in India. And actually on the fish welfare piece, just the other day, a cooperative of fish producers in southern India made a commitment to improving fish welfare. So yeah, seeing some exciting, exciting progress there. I've heard that Israel, for some reason, has just had an explosion of interest in veganism and, and animal welfare and, and the issue of treatment of farmed animals. What's, what's going on with that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that there are a couple of factors at play. So one is Israel has a really strong animal movement. Uh, it has a very strong vegan movement, but also a really strong animal welfare reform movement. And I actually think it's a great example of how these two don't need to be diametrically opposed. Israel has very high rates of, of veganism, but also some of the most progressive animal welfare laws. Uh, then on the food technology side, I think you're seeing two trends. So one is just significant government interest in promoting startups. Israel is, as the sort of startup nation. 
The other thing is a real interest in food self-sustainability. So the other country that I think has been really ahead of the curve on government support for alternative proteins is Singapore. And of course, Singapore and Israel both have in common that they're small nations with relatively small amounts of of land for farming. So I think in both cases, the kind of desire for food self-sustainability combined with government backing for research, for science, for new startups, I think is really critical. Okay, yeah, back in 2017, we talked about kind of the outer frontier of animal welfare work being fish and crustaceans, and I guess possibly insects, although like not even sure, not even confident, really, that insects can feel pain. Yeah, what's been going on for for those animals that are not cuddly enough that they can really arouse very much, very much human sympathy? Yes, we're seeing some some promising signs on this. So first on on fish, I think we've seen a number of important milestones. So one is a European Union official advisory body has adopted fish welfare standards. And I think there's really the potential for the European Commission to adopt the first fish welfare legislation in the years ahead. Secondly, we're seeing some of the major sustainability certification schemes starting to launch animal welfare standards. So Friends of the Sea, uh, which is a major farmed fish certification scheme, launched standards this year. And then on the uh, crustaceans, I think we we are finally starting to see some attention to this. So two things I would call out. One is... CP Foods, which is actually the world's largest shrimp producer, it's a Thai agribusiness, recently adopted new animal welfare standards across multiple species, including shrimp. And it included a ban on this particularly nasty practice called eye stalk ablation, where they they cut off the eyes of female shrimps to make them grow faster. Um, <laughs> Sorry, go, go on. It's just, yeah, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> the... Yeah, the, the ingeniousness of factory farming never never kind of fails to fails to amaze. The other piece of, of potential progress on, on this is the European government is actually uh, sorry, the, the UK government rather, is uh, currently reviewing the evidence on decapod crustacean consciousness. So and this was was partly as a result of lobbying by a group Crustacean Compassion that we actually just made a made a grant to. And hopefully the UK government will soon be reporting back on basically whether they think decapod crustaceans are conscious, and if they are, the potential for them to be included under existing UK animal welfare legislation. Yeah, uh, back in 2017, you hadn't funded anything focused on helping wild animals. So yeah, animals that aren't in animal agriculture. But you were curious about the problem and kind of, it was interesting to, to see that there was a, a growing number of people who were taking a general interest in this and trying to create nonprofits out of the issue. Yeah, is that a topic that OpenPhil has dipped its toes into yet? Yeah, we have a little bit. So we're funding some basic research on the topic. We're not funding advocacy or interventions, but we're, we're funding work to better understand the problem and drivers of welfare in wild animals. And, you know, one example, we've, we've made a couple of small research grants now on the advice of Wild Animal Initiative. And one example I'm excited about is a grant to Samnika Halsley at the University of Missouri, who's looking at the impact of various wildlife diseases on the welfare of animals. So this is somewhere we are already seeing active management. People go out and, you know, try and prevent wildlife diseases for, for all kinds of reasons. They can spread it to farm animals, they can spread it to people. So we're already studying it. We're already, there's already active events going on. Just looking at what the, the welfare impacts of those are, I think, offers a really interesting avenue into exploring this issue. Yeah, has there been any exciting research on uh, animal consciousness since 2017? Or is this kind of one of those eternal thousand-year-long mystery philosophical issues that doesn't really move very much over a four-year period? It's definitely a major mystery, and I'm not sure we've seen a huge amount of, of new research on this. But one thing I have been excited to see is Rethink Priorities has done a number of 
research reports, really actually picking up on, on where my colleague Luke left things out with his moral patienthood report. And they've been looking at you know, there's a huge amount of, of different pieces of evidence out there about animal consciousness. And they're trying to work out which of these pieces are most relevant and what do these pieces collectively tell us. So if people are interested, I'd really recommend first checking out Luke's moral patient report, if you haven't already, from a few years ago. But then second, looking on, on the EA forum, where you think posted a number of these pieces about how we can think about different considerations on, on animal consciousness. Yeah, we'll stick up links to all of those as always in the uh, link section on the blog post attached to this episode. Yeah, I've kind of noticed that I think a major split among effective altruist-focused animal advocates is between those who think that the problem is ultimately going to be solved by a technology that makes meat no longer a very appealing product for people to use, and those who think that it's more likely to be solved through moral suasion, uh, convincing people that the way we're treating animals is, is, is just unacceptable. Yeah, do you have a view on that, or do you lean one way or the other, or are you just kind of hedging your bets and investing a bit in both strategies? Yeah, definitely hitching our bets. I mean, I, I think that makes sense for a couple of reasons. So one is that I think each of those bets is far from certain. You know, I, I hope both of them uh, come true, but I, I think there are major obstacles on both technology and moral suasion. And so it makes sense given the scale of factory farming and the importance of addressing it, that we have multiple plausible bets. A second thing is that they do reinforce each other, I think, in important ways. So for instance, a lot of the founders of the most promising startups on the technology side were motivated by concern for animals and were motivated by the moral arguments. And, and the third thing is that I think there are benefits to the moral suasion beyond just solving the problem of factory farming. Obviously, it's a huge thing to solve, and I, I'm not you know, saying we'll, we'll solve that anytime soon. But I think, for instance, when you look at wild animal welfare, even if the technology were to solve factory farming, the importance of having people concerned about the well-being of individual animals for doing something about the scale of suffering for wild animals, I think, is, is really important. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say there definitely are people out there who go for the moral suasion angle just because they think the moral progress will have longer term benefits in the, in the longer term. Because you may say, what, what if we find some other use for animals or there's some other way that we can harm other beings that replaces factory farming? If you've actually managed to change people's moral values, then you're guarding more against that than just changing the technology, which changes what's most convenient for people. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I, I think that when you look at a lot of the areas where technology is making huge progress, it both seems to be heavily motivated by moral concerns. So you look at climate change, where we have clean technology making huge inroads. A lot of that, I think, is moral concern from investors, moral concern from governments that's fueling both te that technological progress. But also, it's, it's the case that if you just had that technological progress and there wasn't any moral concern then you could have technological progress and, you know, making new cleaner coal technologies and people might say, oh, actually now that's more efficient again, you know, like, great, let's, let's switch back to that. So I think that it's important that you have, you have both. Yeah. Does that line of reasoning affect your grant making very much? Or because I guess it just nudges you a bit more towards the moral suasion than you might have otherwise, but not a dramatic impact. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that it, it definitely keeps us interested in, in both. And I should say we would do, we've done more on the moral suasion and animal welfare side than the technological side, but that is more motivated by seeing where other people's funding is going. And particularly, very happy to see a huge amount of private sector funding going to alternative proteins. And so we've seen more neglectedness on the moral suasion and animal welfare reform side. Okay, yeah, speaking of the grants, I've put out a couple of the larger grants that you've made over the last year or two. And I was curious to hear in brief, why it is that those organizations stood out and perhaps why the intervention stood out or why you decided to fund that organization in particular? Does that sound good? Yeah, it sounds great. 
All right. Yeah. Uh, you gave a $4 million grant to the Good Food Institute, which is a nonprofit that helps to promote, I guess, uh, clean meat and plant-based meat alternatives, but or to, to support the growth of that industry. Yeah. Why? Uh, why them? Yeah. So we're really excited about the potential on the alternative protein side. And although uh, we're seeing a huge amount of private sector investment, we're seeing far less on the nonprofit side of this. So we're still seeing, you know, in the tens of millions on all nonprofit philanthropic work on alternative proteins. And we think there's a lot of important stuff that companies aren't going to do themselves and that the Good Food Institute is doing a really good job of advancing those priorities. So one example would be policy work, both lobbying for funding for alternative protein research, also opposing attempts by the meat industry to throttle the industry before it gets going. So for instance, I think the Good Food Institute helped contribute to the defeat at the European Parliament this last year of a meat industry pushed initiative to ban labels like veggie burgers or plant-based chicken labels <laughs> on, on products. Um, so yeah, I think really important to prevent those kinds of, of efforts to undermine the industry before it gets really going. Another example, I think, of something exciting that the Good Food Institute is doing is working with companies. So meeting with major meat companies, major food companies, with investors, providing them information, getting them more excited about space, giving them good information they need to get into the space to make the right choices. So I think a lot of work building the whole kind of sector of alternative projects. All right. How about the Humane League's Open Wing Alliance? Yeah, so we've been really excited to see the expansion of this over the last few years. This is a network of now over 70 animal protection organizations around the world. And the way it works is that the Humane League identifies promising local groups, often in countries where there's only one or two groups, they're very small, and it works with them both to build capacity, to train them in campaigns, to, to give them funding, but also to focus them on some of the highest impact interventions. So particularly focusing on K-tree campaigns and in some geographies now, broiler chicken campaigns. And we've seen that both help local groups get the first wins in countries. So for instance, SPCA Selangor, which is a, a Malaysian group, getting a win from Subway to go K-tree in Malaysia. And we're secondly seeing them coordinating these major global campaigns to get global commitments from multinationals. So for instance, Burger King, I mentioned, but also from major hotel chains like Hilton that have recently committed to going K-tree globally, thanks to the campaigning of this group across many countries at once. All right. Yeah. And uh, and finally, you gave some money to The Guardian, interestingly, to do uh, journalism about factory farming and, and animal cruelty. That's slightly out of left field. Um, yeah. Why, uh, <laughs> why, why that grant? Yes, this was definitely an unusual um, one for us. And, and I should emphasize that we don't have editorial control. It's funny, every time they, they write an article as part of our series, I, I get a few emails from people who wish that we'd gotten them to write the article uh, differently. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I think that the main challenge here is really trying to increase the mainstream media's attention to factory farming as an issue. It's interesting, it's not that it's covered in a you know biased way by publications or anything, it's just that it's not covered. It, it's really shocking how little coverage gets devoted to factory farming. And I think part of that is, is the ailment that because it's an institution that has existed for a long time and is just continuing to exist, it's not a news story. Like it's, it's, not, a, it's not a sudden disaster. It's, it's just an ongoing long-term disaster. And so really the, the hope in funding this is to draw more attention to this issue to get more reporting on the issue. Yeah. Do you think it's an impediment that people don't want to know because they don't want to, it's just so inconvenient <laughs> for them to find out. They'd rather read something else. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a major impediment. Um, that's definitely something that we do hear that from from journalists of both that when they write articles, you know, they'll get negative feedback of like, oh god, we didn't want to hear about this, or that you know that will even result in internal pushback. So journalists who want to write about this and and their bosses, their editors will say like, oh god, not like another article on factory farming. Like, oh, uh, that's you know, there, there are enough bad things in the world right now. Yeah, so that's that's a real challenge, and and you know, I think we talked about this last time that. The, the craziness to me of factory farming is that it is so gruesome that you can't just share all the details. You can't just post a video on Facebook that is just standard factory farming footages because a lot of it will violate the images, you know, guidelines on, on Facebook. You can't run this on a, on a major news show in its entirety because a lot of it will violate their content policy. So that just gives you a sense of how gruesome the system is, that a lot of it is censored under, under, our, kind of, uh, under our standard guidelines on content. Yeah, it's like if it's less bad, it would be more shocking somehow. Uh, yeah, you'd be exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I, I know OpenPhil has made some investments in alternative proteins, and I think those are commercially sensitive, so you haven't released a lot of the details. Maybe, though, at the industry level, do you have a sense of like roughly, say, how much money is going into the for-profit business side of this, uh, or like you know, all of the all of food tech companies, as against the non-profit sector? I, I don't really have a sense of like, which one is larger than the other. Yeah, the the for profit side is definitely a lot a lot larger. So oh, on the alternative on the alternative protein side, I think over the last few years we're now well over a billion dollars invested in alternative protein companies. Uh, if you include acquisitions of alternative protein companies, we're over two billion dollars in the last in the last few years. By contrast, on the non profit side, you've got the Good Food Institute, which is about fifteen million dollars a year. And then you've got cumulatively all the other nonprofits in the space, less than 10 million a year. So way smaller. And yeah, I should say too, on, on our investments, we invested in Impossible Foods a number of, of years ago. We haven't invested in anything else in the space since then. And that's really just driven by this imbalance in money. We, we're really excited about what a lot of startups in the space are doing. But we're also really excited to see that there are lots of for-profit investors out there who are happy to pick up those opportunities, whereas for people like us or anyone listening has a greater willingness to donate, I think there is a far greater need on the nonprofit side. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does that have any implications for people in their careers? I suppose if the food tech stuff is flush with money, then does that mean they need people more? <laughs> or does it really not affect whether you should go into the for-profit or nonprofit sector as a, as a staff member? Yeah, I think it will probably still be dominated by personal considerations. So, you know, if you're if you're a scientist, particularly a food scientist, uh, then there are just far more promising things to do on the on the company side. I think if you're a generalist, it could be an argument in favor of going to the nonprofit side because I think we've seen a similar dynamic that we've seen on the money side, we have seen on the talent side, where the amount of media attention that plant-based meats have gotten recently, I think particularly with the Beyond Meat IPO, with the Impossible Whopper, with a number of these sort of iconic things. I think we are seeing a lot more general people trying to go into the space. So I have friends from college who don't care about animals, who you know, graduated from business school and trying going to work at, at Beyond Meat. So I think, which is awesome. I mean, I'm really excited. We have lots of lots of smart people, talented people going into the space. If you were just looking to maximize your impact and, and you're neutral, yeah, I would say I think we have a greater a greater need on the nonprofit side. I guess another thing would be if those companies just have tons of money, then they could just pay for the talent. So I suppose, yeah, not only are they really cool, but they can probably pay good good salaries to get the people they need as well. Right. They can pay. And the other thing, of course, is for a lot of the startups, they can offer stock options. And mm. at least right now with the sector doing so well, that I think <laughs> was very, very enticing to a lot of people. Yeah. 
Are there any common factors you've noticed in which projects have succeeded and gotten more more funding over time versus those where perhaps uh, you lost interest over time or they, or they didn't, didn't seem to work out quite as well as you'd hoped? Yeah, so I, I think that in general, we're obviously looking for science attractability and for feedback loops. And that's where we have seen a lot of progress on, on K-Tree campaigns and implementation. And we have continued to fund that additionally as we've, as we've seen that, that kind of funding. I think where we have struggled more is on the question of how much to fund the new larger scale, more neglected areas where there isn't as much of that feedback loop, there isn't as much. And I think that's really an open question. So I think, for instance, on you know fish, we discussed some positive developments, but it's still a major question of how much additional progress we see. I think that's true in a lot of Asia, that there's a huge, you know, huge importance to funding there. It's where half the world's land farm animals are, 90% of the world's farmed fish, but the work is harder. It's, it's less tractable. And so I think the challenge that we constantly are, are working on is adjusting between scale and tractability and how you kind of weigh those those two considerations. Yeah, if you're comfortable going into it, are there any uh, focus areas or, or interventions that you're excited about in 2017 that you've kind of subsequently decided not to keep funding or not to fund as much? And again, what drove that? Yeah, so there have been a few things that didn't work out exactly as we hoped. You know, I think one interesting example would be that we had more optimism on broiler chicken welfare breeds, that there could be higher welfare outcomes without sacrificing growth rate, you know, as, as you and I discussed, the, the value to keeping animals in factory farms for as little time as possible. You want them to, to suffer as little as possible, but also also be there for as little time as possible. And unfortunately, the studies that have come out since then have, have suggested a pretty clear trade-off between efficiency and welfare, between growth rates and welfare. And at least for now, this, this could change over time. We do see this pretty clear correlation between growth rate and key welfare outcomes. A negative one. That's right. <laughs> I see. So, okay, so so the hope here might have been that you could have an animal that grew more quickly and produced more meat more quickly, but that would mean, and that might be bad for their welfare, but maybe not very much. And, this, and it would mean that they'd have to live for much less long and so they'd suffer less in the meantime. But it seems like, in fact, there's just not much efficiency gain like in either direction here because the faster they grow, the worse their lives. That's Yeah, exactly. That's, that's right. Okay. That is... It's grim. <laughs> um, yeah, for listeners, there's, there's a bunch out there, I think, who try to have an impact by donating. They're either you know giving 10% of the salary or they've gone into a higher earning role in order to be able to give more. And, and some of them give with the hope of helping uh, farm animals. So if you had something like you know $30,000 a year to give away, how would you suggest that someone go about figuring out how to disperse it in the most effective way possible? Is there any kind of general process that someone could use that would work as well in 2023 as it will in 2021? Yeah, so I think there are multiple good ways to do this. I think if you have a lot of time, then, you know, researching effective groups in the space, I think one thing that can make sense is to just support a relatively small number of groups you're excited about and get to know well. I think if you have less time, two promising options. One would be to give to animal charity evaluated standout charities. I think it's it's a good list of, of charities that do good work. Or another option would be to give to something like the EA Animal Welfare Fund, which, full disclosure, I'm I'm the uh, fund chair of. Um, <laughs> though, though I do not do not get any uh, royalties on, on on donations. So uh, <laughs> my my interest is, yeah. is philanthropic. Uh, but you know, I mean, I, I can say that for myself, for instance, with my personal donations, I do a mixture of those three. I give to a couple of groups that I I know well. I give some money to ACE standout charities, and and I give money to the EA fund. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. All right, yeah. People were uh, sending in a lot of uh, audience questions when I mentioned on social media that, uh, we were, that we were doing this interview. So I'll, uh, I'll hit you with a couple of them. 
Yeah. Are, are there any patterns in uh, kind of the differences of opinion between the animal focused researchers on the open field team and the other kind of animal charity analysts at animal charity evaluators? Or I was going to say, uh, or, or the Effective <laughs> Altruism Animal Fund, but it's, uh, but you lead that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe uh, there's, there's not a lot of daylight perhaps between you and you. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, is, is, there, is, is there much difference between the uh, open field team and, uh, and the people at animal charity evaluators? Yeah. So, I mean, first I'd say on the EA fund, I think there is some, some difference. We've definitely tried to bring in a diversity of opinions here. So I am one of four fund managers. Uh, the other three are not with open philanthropy. And I think they've brought some really valuable, diverse perspectives to that. And in general, through the EA fund, we're looking for more speculative opportunities. We're looking for things that are smaller, things that are international, more international. In terms of the difference between open philanthropy and animal charity evaluators, I think we have very different assignments and very different um, in terms of just what we can fund and, and where we're going. So, you know, in the case of animal charity evaluators, their task was finding groups that you can support everything they do. So open philanthropy, most of our grants are restricted. We, we go to a group and we see one project that we're really excited about and we fund that one project and we don't have to worry about the whole rest of the organization. Are you excited about all 10 things they're doing? We're just going to fund this one thing we're really excited about to scale up as, as big as it can get. A second thing is, is we can make new things happen. So we can do a lot of things where we go to groups and say, hey, how about doing this other thing you weren't doing? We'll give you money to do that. They're not in a position to, to do that. And then I think the other thing is, is, although we try to be open and transparent, we don't have the same need to go through and explain every factor and where every factor than the way they do. So, you know, I actually think that I, I really like the list of animal charity evaluators, standout charities. I think if you look at their list of top charities, it, it overlaps with some of our biggest grantees. We have some other groups we're really excited about that, that aren't on their list that we're supporting. You know, I, I think one mistake people can make, for instance, is looking at that list and deciding any group that's not on that list must be bad, that it must have like not been evaluated, must be something wrong with it. And that is often not the case. It's often the case that those groups haven't been reviewed or they have, but they have particular strengths that can't be recognized in some way, whatever. So people should not limit themselves to that. But I do think it's a good starting place, particularly for new donors in the movement. Yeah. Another person asked, uh, how would we know when the effective altruism community's investments in plant-based and cultured meat alternatives is no longer cost effective? Yeah. So I think this gets to the difference between the for-profit and the non-profit side of this, where I, I already think it's the case that if you are impact investing in alternative proteins, you're probably not having a lot of counterfactual impact right now. So just because so many of the most exciting things are oversubscribed, uh, which is awesome. There are all these investors, non-impact investors who want to fund it. That could change. But for now, it, there's a lot of money on that side. By contrast, on the non-profit side, there's still not very there's still not much money. So we're still, you know, talking alternative proteins the same, less than 25 million a year. And I think there's still huge scope now. If we reached a point where we're at 100 million a year on alternative proteins on the nonprofit side, maybe that'd be different. But I think unfortunately we're probably still quite away away from that point. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So it sounded like you're interested in people donating to the Good Food Institute and nonprofits like that. But also, what are the academic research labs? You sounded earlier like you were saying that there's potentially really a need for scientists within academia to look at some of these topics because they're not yet commercial ready. That's right. That's right. So, you know, the challenge with academic work is obviously it's expensive. Um, and so ideally, we'll have that funded by governments and by universities. But I do think there's an important role for philanthropy in getting projects to that point where they can be funded. So getting researchers to the point where they can submit to the National Science Foundation. And, you know, people can do that directly for universities. So for instance, the Berkeley Old Meat Lab or UC Davis as a major program. 
They can also do it through the Good Food Institute, has a major grant program to universities for academic research. And then you also have other groups like New Harvest has a major grant program on cultured meat research. Yeah, someone else writes in, um, what does Lewis think about long-termist arguments for prioritizing animal welfare? So these arguments tend to run something along the lines of one of the ways that the long-term future could go very badly is if people have inhumane values or decide to do harmful things to animals or, you know, analogs of animals in the future, uh, potentially, I guess some people worry about a mistreatment of artificial intelligence or suffering on computers or just mistreatment of any beings in the, in the purposes of making profit or advancing your goals. So, so I guess that, that's one line of argument. But yeah, do, do you have any, any thoughts on these motivations that some people have for prioritizing work on, on animal well-being and, and promoting a humane treatment of animals? Yeah, so I, I would say I'm definitely not an expert on long-termism within EA and, and certainly not on AI or on digital sentience or, or other topics like that. So I'll leave that to people who know a lot more than I do. But I do think that there is a lot of value to influencing societal values for the long term. I think that if we were to assume that the future were just to have values similar to the values that it has today, those would be values that would both allow the continuance of things like factory farming, but also simultaneously argue against helping wild animals in a lot of a lot of circumstances. And so I think there is a lot of value first just on future animal issues, like nature and wild animals could be around for a very long time. And and just I don't think it's it's a given that we will do things to, to help them and improve their welfare. I also think that, um, that yeah, the, the potential values, the way we treat animals could be an interesting proxy for the way we treat other beings in the future and, and other, other sentient, sentient beings or systems. Yeah. One response I've heard to this is the idea that it's true that the reason that we mistreat animals so badly is, in a sense, technological advancement that has created this kind of technological system that requires animal suffering in order to be profitable, at least the way that it's set up now. But people don't want to do this. They they do mostly think in their hearts that it's wrong for animals to suffer. And if it weren't costly to get rid of it, they probably would be happy to get rid of it if it didn't come at their culinary expense or their financial expense. And so eventually, as technology matures and we stop being constrained by... Our, I mean, human technology is very impressive in some ways, but it's very feeble and pathetic relative to what might be possible in the very long term. Uh, you know, why on earth would we set up a factory farming system once our technology is, you know, space, space age level? And therefore, similarly, if we're unconstrained technologically in the future, why uh, that there wouldn't even be a trade-off necessarily between creating suffering and making more money. These things would, would be compatible. This, this starts to get very speculative, but uh, do, yeah, do you have any reaction to that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think um, one thing is that that value is a very partial value <laughs> you're describing of, yeah, would rather not have this uh, if it weren't for all these other constraints. And, yet, you know, the strongest evidence is we not only have it, but it's, it's getting bigger and it's getting worse, including in the most technologically advanced, richest nations in the world. And I think that if I were someone in 1900 who was, who was saying like, hey, how will the future go? I would have said like, it's pretty good progress so far. We've had a good trend on, on how, you know, humans are treating one another. Things are looking good. And, um, you know, I generally, and I, I would not have, have forecast, oh, it'll, it'll become slightly more convenient to mistreat animals in horrific ways. And we'll just start doing so that. We'll, because we'll 100 even, exit. Yeah, in spite of our values, which, you know, in the 19th century, there were already strong values of concern for animal welfare and, and humanitarianism. We'll just completely ignore those. And so that's that's one thing. I think a second thing is... 
I think people will just assume factory farming will become obsolete soon, and maybe. Um, but I think there are there are still major technological challenges, and also just major cultural factors where people have this weird thing where, like, a lot of people would still rather just eat meat, even when you know confronted with something that is technologically superior. And then, and related to that is is wild animal well-being, where even if you think there's a clear trend toward the extinction of factory farming. I think the trend you mainly see in the, in the West, at least, on wild animals is a trend toward complete non-interventionism, uh, a trend of reverence for nature as it is. And even amongst people who are otherwise very concerned about the plight of animals, surprisingly little concern about the plight of, of wild animals in many circumstances. So I guess I'm, I'm less optimistic on that. And then similarly, I, w- I would just say that I think that value of like, you know, if we have a value of like, yeah, we'd rather not torture things unless it's convenient to do so, you can imagine that value working out poorly in the future if, if there were other life forms where, like, it was slightly more convenient <laughs> to torture them. So I guess that that's kind of my my concern. Yeah, my reaction to the segment, I, I guess, I think it should get some weight. There's like, there's something to be to be said for it. I, I feel like the, the point that I would push on is the idea that uh, in the future, even as technology gets very advanced, it might not be the case that the most profitable or the most efficient thing won't involve suffering. So you could imagine that like the most efficient computer algorithm or something could be one that involves like anxiety for the program or like pressure on the program to, to, to do this or that. I guess, I mean, yeah, we're just starting to get off into, into really speculative territory, but I, I'm not sure that that idea that, um, that there won't be a trade-off between, you know, maximizing profit or maximizing output and having like a negative uh, sentiment, that there's like such a strong tendency in that direction that we can um, be, be, be confident about that and not worry about it. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And, and obviously, yeah, as you say, we, it gets very speculative. So, you know, to me, the most useful thing is when we look at the look at the past and sort of the, the trends historically, it seems to me like generally there's been a huge amount of progress for humans and technology has achieved a huge amount of progress. But often critical to technology realizing that progress and doing good things rather than bad things has been human moral sentiments, has been the fact that we care about it doing good things for humans and we either have governments restrict the, the bad things it can do or we have, you know, people have, have their own ethical qualms about that and, and are not inclined to use it for those purposes. So to me, it just seems like a broader symptom of, of this trend of technology has huge potential, but, you know, human morals really still matter as to how that technology is used and to what, what impact it has on sentient beings. Yeah, I was speaking to a researcher, um, yeah, who, who I guess I won't name because this research is very preliminary and I think they're, they're not ready to, to put it out yet. So, so, so take it with a grain of salt. But their impression was that the elimination of slavery may be far more like morally and historically contingent than uh, many people imagine. So I think many people, including me, have kind of thought, well, as technology advanced, as we had the Industrial Revolution, as like people learned more, it was just inevitable that slavery would be a combination of morally repugnant and economically inefficient. And so we would get rid of it. But uh, they pointed out uh, through most of history, slavery was very profitable. And in fact, there was like ways that you probably could have set it up in the modern world such that it would be profitable, at least for, for some purposes. Yeah, I won't go into the details of the arguments there, but but the idea that slavery can't be profitable for the owners of slaves uh, in, in the modern world probably probably isn't strictly true. Another thing they point out is just that basic... Okay, so in the ancient world, there were very large numbers of slaves in a wide range of societies. 
basically no one thought that slavery should be abolished. We, we can't really find almost any writings saying that, even from slaves, even from slaves that were freed, perhaps most shockingly, none of them who even when they go on to become prolific authors says, you know, slavery is bad and we should end slavery. <laughs> there, 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 there is a tradition of writing about humane treatment of slaves in the same way that perhaps now we have discussion of the humane treatment of animals. So let's say you, should, you, know, you should treat slaves with dignity. That, that, that was like a line of thought that some people went down, although certainly not everyone. But yeah, you basically don't see this apparently in any, in any widespread way or almost at all until the Quakers, I think, in the 17th century. Um, and they just become strict abolitionists, I think, and then and then it spreads from there. But it suggests that, you know, what if we had this had just continued? Maybe it was actually just a particular vein of moral thought that ultimately caused us to decide that slavery was an atrocity and had to be eliminated. And we could have gone down a different path where that where that didn't happen. Now, <laughs> this is an argument that they're, thinking, that they're researching, I think, of writing up. I think we need to probably pin down some of these empirical details because I'm not 100% sure that all of that, all of the claims just there are true. But it's an uh, interesting line of thinking. I think that's a great point. And actually, just by chance, you've, you've come across one of my hobbies is reading about abolitionist uh, history. <laughs> so I can, I can tell you that I, I think that is broadly correct, particularly on that, that point of the profitability. I think there was this, this old narrative within abolitionist history that slavery was on the way to extinction. And what we've seen is that in the US, the invention of the cotton gin had made slavery more efficient and more profitable than ever in the lead up to the Civil War, and there were more slaves than ever. In the UK, when the UK abolished both the slave trade and ultimately slavery in the empire, it accounted for a huge portion of British GDP. It was an incredibly important industry. And the one that gets neglected perhaps the most was in Russia, the abolition of, of serfdom in the 1860s, which was the largest number of people enslaved in the world. It was an incredibly profitable uh, structure at, at, at the time. And, and as you say, it was something, it was an institution that hadn't been questioned until the 18th century. And particularly looking at the UK and the, and the US example, if the Quakers hadn't come along, if you hadn't had this group of people who were very morally concerned and financially very successful and had a lot of money to fund a, a major crusade against, against slavery, I think it's a fascinating question of what would have happened otherwise. And at the very least, you can see this in places like Brazil, which took another 50 years to abolish slavery after most of the, most of the rest of the large slaveholding nations had abolished it. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there are plenty of these examples from moral reform in history where technology helps and moral progress helps, but it was really important that there was a, a concerted band of advocacy and that there was a lot of work actually on, on ending the practice, on reforming these institutions. Yeah. Yeah, we'll try to get more about this topic on the on the show. Perhaps with this uh, with, with this guest once I've been able to look into it more. Yeah, I, I think another interesting angle from a series of lectures uh, from someone called Robert Garland that I've been listening to over the last year is a couple of different a couple of different history courses. Is that it seems like there was a, a couple of aspects of Christian thinking and like uh, parts of the Bible that provided kind of fertile ground on which groups like the Quakers could point to Scripture and argue that slavery was no longer permitted, at least in the New Testament. And if, say, the original pagan religions of Greece and Rome had persisted and not been displaced by Christianity, which uh, seems also historically contingent, at least to some degree, there just wouldn't have been the raw material there about the dignity of each individual and their relationship with God as a creator. There was simply no, there was no underlying principles within pagan religions that would allow you to object to slavery on principle because they didn't really believe that the gods cared about any individuals or that individuals all had dignity or should be treated properly or anything like that. Uh, it, it just was quite absent from those religions at the time, which is partly, you know, 
a reflection of those religions, partly also just a reflection of that time in history more generally. Uh, it's not not only a religious issue. But yeah, it suggests that just like history could potentially have gone down many different roads of moral thought. And, that, you know, if you had a religion that really had as one of its fundamental underlying ideas that slavery is acceptable, then maybe it would have been much harder to dislodge, even if people eventually, even if some subset of people did conclude that it was immoral. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the irony, of course, is, is that slaveholders also cited the Bible as their justification yeah. for slavery. And uh, Absolutely. it's interesting looking across different societies on this because you did see slavery-like practices in China and India challenged earlier in history than you did in the West with some basis in, in Eastern religions. And so, yeah, I'm not sure this is you know specific to Christianity or specific to any one religion. I, I think in a lot of religions, you have a number of really important things, both about the dignity of, of individuals, but also often about concern for individual sentient beings. And then you also have language, which at least if people want to, they can, can use to justify uh, whatever practices they, they want. Yeah, totally. All right, uh, let's move on to a little section with some career advice. Sorry, slight tone change here. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we did a section on career advice for listeners uh, back in 2017, which covered, I think, a lot of the material that we'd want to talk about today. And we just don't need to, re- to repeat all of that. But yeah, I'm curious to know, are there any things that you've learned or changed your mind on since then about topics like the best things to study or the best ways to build career capital early on in, in your career or the orgs that you would be particularly keen for people to work at? Uh, yeah, any uh, news that people should be aware of? Yeah, so I think the main update is that I've just become more uncertain in general. I think one thing I've realized over time is that the opportunities in this space keep changing and and are hard to predict. So I wouldn't want to give hard and fast advice. And and I certainly uh, would encourage people to seek out multiple data points in in advising them on this. That's good advice for everyone all of the time. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And and, and it's funny because, you know, it sounds generic. I mean, it it is generic. But one thing I I have found is that there is a general tendency of people to assume that, well, you know, if, if you've been successful in this space, Whatever you say, uh, you know, is, is, is the thing to do. And, and I yeah. made this mistake um, when I entered the space early on. I remember, you know, listening to a, a relatively small number of people who had been successful and they told me that whatever they were doing was the most important thing and definitely <laughs> I should follow in exactly their path and do whatever they were doing. And, and I think I didn't sufficiently adjust that for me and for what, like, you know, for, my, for what interests me, for what I'm good at, for what would be sustainable for me. So that's something which I really do think, yeah, can be challenging. If you're, if you're new in the space, you just want to do the most good for animals, you look to someone who is doing a lot of good for animals and, and they tell you, hey, you need to go out and start leafleting. And, you know, you're someone who hates interacting with other people. Like, it, it's not, it's not going to work. And so, yeah, that's, that's just a general, general note of caution. Yeah. Yeah, just in general, uh, I think by and large, we would like uh, our audience to maybe think for itself more than, 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 than some people are inclined to. Or I, it, it's very understandable. People would like uh, straightforward answers to, you know, where should, I go, where should I go study? What questions should I do? And, you know, we do our best to try to provide as useful a guidance. And if there ever sometimes are like clear answers on questions, uh, we'll offer that. But it's not really possible to build a career in these areas without doing a lot of your own legwork to figure out what's the best opportunities for you, what's the best fit for you, yeah, what topics are available at your university, who do you get along with, all of these are really specific things. And also just in so many of these areas, like a question like what is the most important research to be done within, you know, this field of animal advocacy, there hasn't been enough work done on that to have a clear answer to that, even that question. So you would, if, if you're going to go and do that kind of research, you probably have to spend some time thinking for yourself. I guess actually one benefit of this show and interviewing lots of different people is that it makes clear that there aren't simple answers to this and people disagree and you get you get back and forth. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great point. And, and I would just say, I think the other benefit 
to exploring things for yourself, taking as many data points, is you might see opportunities that no one is currently thinking about. So some of the most exciting things might be starting a type of company, a type of nonprofit group, doing a type of activity or research that no one is currently doing or thinking about. And, and so, yeah, I definitely encourage people. I think often people are sort of reticent when they come into the area of like, well, this, you know, this must be a silly idea because no one's currently doing it. And yeah, sometimes they are silly ideas run, run them by some people, but uh, sometimes it could be, could be the most important thing and, and counterfactually could have the greatest impact because no one else is doing it. Yeah. Just a general observation is that the number of people who are, say, liberated enough in their life because they're, say, sufficiently wealthy or educated or privileged that they can decide what to do based on social impact or personal interest or yeah, intellectual engagement, the number of people who are in that situation, even globally, is not large relative to the number of problems and relative to the number of like plausible approaches that one might take to solve problems such that in areas where there isn't, say, already a huge pylon of lots of people just focusing on this particular intervention style or this particular narrow problem, there's just lots of fertile areas of, you know, businesses that could be started, research projects that could be done, things that could be checked to see whether they're any good that just no, it hasn't been done because there, there aren't enough people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, even a world with 8 billion people, it's just not enough to cover all of the, all of the territory. So I mean, yeah, I guess I wonder, I think my colleagues would, would agree with me on that, that you, sh- you shouldn't take the fact that someone hasn't already done something as that strong an indicator that it's a bad idea, unless it's a niche area where it's gotten like an unusually large amount of attention relative to like the, the surface area of ways that you could do things about it. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's I think that's only magnified in the area of farm animal welfare, where the movement has traditionally been so small, and there there have been so few people working on 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 this full time. It also makes me think of another consideration that I think people sometimes overly discount, which is your own personal constraints. So I think sometimes people look at you know this startup co-founder who had no constraints and was able to go and do this or that, and I should do that. I think it's it's really important to consider your own personal constraints, how risk tolerant are you? How, to what degree do you need to make a steady salary year on year for your family, etc. So I think really that sometimes some of the advice people give is, is given as if there were no personal constraints in this world. And most of us are not lucky enough to, to be in a, a place of, of no personal constraints. So I definitely encourage people to, to factor that up. Yeah. I'm just thinking a question of like, yeah, what's what's the most impactful career? Uh, I feel like, you know, we could go away and study this for ages and come back with an answer like 42. <laughs> the question has been slightly ill-posed. This is a, yeah, it's not a, not, a, not a question with an answer like that. <laughs> not, 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 not a propositional answer. All right. Okay, back to where we were. Um, yeah, what's what's some stuff that you've learned that the audience could could give some weight to in terms of planning their career if they want to do something to, to help farm animals? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think um, in general, there are, two broad categories of of things to think about, the alternative proteins and the farm animal movement. And on the alternative protein side, I do think there is huge value on the scientist piece. We we sort of already knew this, but we've seen this continually, a real shortage of scientists at companies in, in government. So if you have a science inclination, think hard about going into alternative proteins. And I think we've also seen the value to business-inclined people, particularly people who have experience in, in, in other settings uh, coming into this. On the advocacy side, I think there is a need for all kinds of roles, and particularly generalists. I think there's, there are a lot of there's a lot of scope on this. I think we have seen a greater need from managers. Makes sense as groups are uh, growing, are professionalizing. There is more of a need for people who have management expertise and who are learning management and thinking thinking hard about it. And then I think one other broad area would be on the research side, 
ability to synthesize existing information. I think a lot of the work we had going on previously was really focused on doing new studies, primary research. And I think one helpful realization from groups like Rethink Priorities, Wild Animal Initiative, is that there's a lot of information out there that is relevant to these questions, but that has been done on other topics. And that people who can synthesize that, bring that together, make it usable for decision makers, uh, that has a really high value. Are there any good opportunities outside of kind of, well, people who want to help animals, they might imagine going and working at these food companies or going and working at an animal advocacy org. That's uh, that's very natural. Are there any kind of oddball opportunities out, outside of those areas that people might not think about, but actually do have a lot of promise? Yeah, so I, I think it depends a lot, obviously, on people's individual circumstances, but a couple of areas I would I would flag. So one would be going to work in government in various roles. So obviously there's the potential to regulate farm animal welfare through going to work in, in politics or in, in administrative positions. There's also the potential, I think, to help allocate research funding by becoming a scientific grant maker within government, by being involved in, in scientific administrations. I think a second area is going to work for large established food companies, not just on the, I think we talked last time about the potential to, to influence things on the farm animal welfare side, but also on the alternative protein side. Now that you have the big meat companies, the big food companies making major plays in alternative proteins, they're going to need people with expertise in that. And I think there really is scope to ensure that they're doing that well, that they're focusing on product categories that are going to impact a lot of animals, that they're producing products that are as good as possible, that you know everything is, is being done as well as possible there. And then I guess the third category would be thinking about some of the international institutions that have a role on this. And and this is perhaps the sort of trickiest career path of how do you get to these places. But if you look at organizations like the UN Food and Agriculture Organization or the World Animal Health Organization, each of them is doing work globally on farm animal welfare. It's very limited and it could really use a kind of shot in the arm. And And my sense is the few people at those places who work on this potentially have quite a bit of influence. And they're the sort of organizations that I think are often overlooked. Uh, people you know, may not even know they exist in the first place. If they do, they may not know they work on animal welfare. And then it's hard to work out how to, how to get to those places. But I think that definitely, particularly for folks who have a, have a scientific background in animal welfare science or in relevant animal health areas, that could be a path. But also just for people who are, who are pursuing that kind of international governance career, that could be an interesting, interesting angle. Yeah, so I think when we last spoke in 2017, you were maybe the only person at Openfield who was working on the animal uh, welfare program, the farm animal welfare program. But I think you've got a little team around you now. Yeah, how many how many people are involved? And uh, I guess what does the picture of the of the work look like now? Yeah, that's right. We've we've expanded, which is is awesome. So we have uh, uh, my colleague Amanda Hungerford, who actually recently got promoted to being a program officer on on farm animal welfare, which I'm really excited about her work. Then we have Adam. Uh, Mosin Breen, who's also working with us on broad program assistance, and excited to announce that we're actually going to be hiring for a new program associate role as well now. Yeah, fantastic. What, what does that work involve? <laughs> what could people look forward to if they apply and get this job? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're looking for someone to basically help us with our existing grantee portfolio. We have over 100 grants in farm animal welfare now. And, uh, yeah, which is, is, is exciting. Um, obviously, keeping up to speed on, on what everyone is doing and uh, how it's going is a real challenge. And so the core of this program associate role 
is going to be doing check-ins with all of those grantees. And so if you're someone who's really interested to learn about what groups are up to all around the world, what they're doing on different issues, if you're really intellectually curious, obviously we're also always looking for people who are analytical, who are good at communicating. But yeah, a lot of it will be focusing on, on maintaining those relationships and in the process giving us a clearer picture of how our current grantees are doing and, and the kind of key information on, on how those grants are going. Yeah. So you're based in San Francisco, but I guess with COVID, everyone's working from home. Um, would someone have to be able to move to San Francisco in order to be able to apply for, for this role? No, they don't. So the, 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 the good news is, yeah, you can apply from anywhere. You can work from anywhere. You know, we have a question on there about whether you would need US work authorization, but we are, are happy to consider sponsoring people for, for work approval. I'm, I'm really happy about it. So yeah, I really hope that people apply wherever they are. You know, we would love to have people from more geographically diverse locations working on this. I mean, I think particularly given our work is global, I uh, would love to have people who are international working on this too. So wherever you are, if you are interested in this role, definitely encourage you to apply. Yeah, what kind of seniority are you thinking of, of, of hiring at? I mean, what would be like a typical age or, or salary or like, you know, how far through someone someone's career that uh, the right person might be? Yeah, so we have flexibility on this. So I would say that regardless of, of where you are in your career, I encourage you to apply. And depending on that level of experience and, and expertise, we may adjust both the seniority of the role and the tasks and the related compensation. I think that the most important thing are having the core skills and having the core inclination and interest in, in, in this issue and the interest in the in the work. And yeah, beyond that, I think you know people can check out the uh, job description. But if it if it generally describes you, I would definitely not let a shortage of career experience or or great length of career experience be an impediment to applying. Yeah. People can find out about that, I guess, at openphilanthropy.org and there'll be a job opportunities button somewhere. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, should be should be online by the time this podcast comes out. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, we'll link to that in the in the show notes uh, as always. I guess yeah, people should also know that uh, farm and warfare. I think even sometimes uh, white animal jobs are, are listed on our job board. So eighty thousand hours dot org slash job hyphen board. Yeah, um, Maria Gutierrez curates uh, a section of jobs from some organisations. They haven't all been uh, super thoroughly vetted because we want to potentially you know offer quite a wide range of uh, opportunities for people who want to advance their careers, not just like you know the top one selected job within an area. But uh, yeah, that's potentially a really good place to start if you're interested in moving into a, into a new problem area and want to get a sense of what opportunities are, are out there in general. Or, or if you're thinking about you're looking for a career change and you want to look at the, applying for, for five jobs that are available right now, um, yeah, uh, the, job, the job board can be, can be really helpful. Right. All right. I've, uh, I've taken up a pretty large fraction of your day now, so probably, probably should probably let you go to go in a minute. I guess for, for listeners who are interested to get an update on how the farm animal scene is going more than once every three or four years on this podcast, uh, what kind of uh, maybe Twitter feeds or, or newsletters or, or blogs could people follow to stay abreast of, of what's going on? Sure. Well, in addition to my newsletter, which you can find on the Open Philanthropy website, if you just Google Open Philanthropy Farm Animal Welfare Research Newsletter, another newsletter I found really helpful is called But Can They Suffer? It's, it's a summary of research in the space. I think there are some really good posts on the EA forum to follow, uh, particularly from groups like Rethink Priorities. And then on Twitter, I think it's more just sort of following a whole bunch of accounts. So I'd encourage people to follow kind of key animal advocates. Some people are experts on the space. Another source I found helpful has been setting up Google News Alerts. So another way to just kind of pull together different information on the space. But you know, honestly, there aren't a ton of, of great compilations of, of material on the space. So it'd be great to see more on, on that front. Yeah. All right. Um, 
I guess sort of f- final question. I was talking to your colleague, Jay Kotra a month ago, uh, and uh, everyone always talks about this thing called AI timelines, which I guess is, uh, you know, when will AI change the world or when will AI uh, achieve some particular threshold? I'm curious to know, do you have kind of a, a meat alternative timelines thing, I guess, which I guess suppose could be when will we have a, a veggie burger that is as intelligent as a human being, but <laughs> maybe more realistically. <laughs> uh, yeah, when do you think we'll have, uh, what, what kind of forecast do you have about, uh, yeah, protein, alternative proteins that might match meat in terms of tastiness and price? <laughs> I, I was really hoping you were going to have me uh, project on when the veggie burger would be as intelligent yeah. as human beings. Uh, <laughs> well, the, I suppose uh, it'll be as intelligent as an AI at that point. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> so, so, many, so many variables. Um, you know, I, I don't have a great prediction on on uh, meat timelines. And it's, it's funny because it's very low stakes because probably it's, it's far enough away that... Yeah. Uh, People won't, won't just, remember this podcast just, by then. And, just and say something, Lewis. Just whatever. I mean, 30 years. No one will remember. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's the sweet spot. Yeah. But no, I mean, I, you know, I would love to see more predictions in this in this in this space i i um, am not going to throw out just a, a year because uh, you know we ill-defined and i don't want people to to start thinking that i i have this high confidence in in something like this but but it would be great to see people doing more predictions on the future of alternative proteins on the future of meat and i definitely am optimistic that this is something we'll see major change on within our lifetimes yeah, yeah. This seems like a topic where if one actually was willing to do some legwork, I think one could make a real forecast and uh, and it wouldn't be completely arbitrary. You could yeah, do analogies to other products, uh, look at the trend over the past and say something meaningful. That's right. And honestly, I think this is somewhere that EA is really well positioned to uh, to, to do good stuff. I mean, a lot of what's out there right now is, is done by market research firms and their projections, including even from like well-established investment banks, tend to be total rubbish. Like you, you look at them and the uh, it, it's kind of embarrassing. The, the like underlying data is bad. The projections are crazy. So I would love to see some EAs doing some more rigorous, rigorous work on this. Yeah, we do love our calibrated forecasts. Um, <laughs> all right, my, my guest today has been uh, Lewis Bollard. Thanks for coming back on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Lewis. Great. It's been, it's been great chatting with you, Rob. If you'd like to learn more about the most effective ways to reduce animal suffering, uh, you might want to check out our previous episodes uh, on the topic, starting, I guess, with uh, Lewis's first interview here uh, on episode number eight, Lewis Bollard on how to end factory farming in our lifetimes. We then recorded an episode on undercover investigations. uh, That's episode 14 uh, with Sharon Nunez and Jose Valle. And then uh, two episodes on alternative meats. That's episode 20 with uh, Bruce Friedrich on plant-based meat uh, and episode number 24 uh, with Marie Gibbons on clean meat. Uh, Finally, uh, we explored one of the most uh, counterintuitive ways to reduce animal suffering uh, in episode number 56 with Persis Iskander, uh, which is all about wild animal welfare. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering is by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and made by Sophia Davis-Fogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.